Williams. This is Ian Sattler, Senior Story Editor at DCU. Hi, this is Mildred Flippin. And Christina Weir. Hi, this is Kevin Vander. Hi, this is Libra Mayo. Hi, this is Brian Ezrelli. Hi, this is Matt Wagner, author of Batman and the Monster Man and Batman and the Mad Monk. Hey, this is Mike Martz, Batman Group Editor. Hey, this is Ethan Van Skybro. My name is Neil Adams. This is Paul Dini. This is Robert Greenberger. This is Jerry Robinson. Hey, this is uh, Will Fortaccio. This is Adam Beechin, and you're listening to the Batman Universe Comics Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast, episode number 91. I'm your host, Dustin, and today we have with us... You got Don. This is a very tired Joe. Neptune's beard! And this is Stella. And we are bringing the latest comic news and comic book reviews from the weeks of April 15th through April 28th. Uh, we have a total of eight books to cover, a very small amount of news to cover, um, and we also have our DCU Spotlight this episode as well. That book's for beginners, uh, brought to you by John. Um, lots of things in this episode, so prepare yourselves for a long one. Oracle here. How's Batgirl doing on assignment in Hong Kong? She's on track, last I checked. Getting to know the streets. Could be useful in the future. I'm eager to have her back, though. We could use an extra set of hands on the ground in the East End. I'm sending you a toxicology report to patch through to her. See what leads you can have her track down. Who's buying? Efforts on transporting the substance. Copy. And Batman, your timing's uncanny. You saved me a phone call. <laughs> Good thing we get unlimited minutes on that Bat family plan, right? Hi, Robin. What's up, Oracle? Selena just reached me. She's found something you should see. Let's get right into comic news. Like I said, very small amount of news to report. The very first thing um, is on April 20th, Comic Book Resources posted up an interview with Scott Snyder and Kyle Higgins talking about the Night of Owls crossover, and there was a couple of interesting little things that haven't popped up in previous interviews, and that's why we're going to cover it. So for this interview, I will read for Comic Book Resources, and Stella will read for Kyle Higgins, and Don will read for Scott Snyder. Let's talk about how this all spreads out across the life of the event. We see at the end of Batman number 8 that Alfred kind of calls the banners for the Bat family to help battle the Owls, while the talent that Nightwing faces has a super personal connection with all of the stories we see here have a similar kind of personal bent to them? I can't speak for any of the other books, but I know that in the case of Nightwing, that was the idea. When we were talking about how to do Night of the Owls and how the book would tie in, Scott asked me which era my talent would come from. And this was right around the time when Scott was writing Batman number 2 and 3, where William kills Alan Wayne. So I said that I wanted to do something from the Gates of Gotham era, where we would or where we could revisit the world we'd built. But it also had to be William Cobb. It had to be Dick Grayson's great-grandfather, because otherwise there's no personal connection. I thought it was a great hook that out of this big reveal, we also get that the guy hunting Bruce was Dick's great-grandfather. You have to deal with that in the crossover. So from minute one, that's what I wanted to do. And for me, giving the general idea of the Night of Owls to the other writers, it was meant to be something that they could take and make their own from story to story. Some of them do connect to the character, like Red Hood, actually gets very personal between Jason and the talent he's fighting. It's not like Dick Grayson and the, William Cobb, but it's at a moment in Jason's life where he's struggling with being back in Gotham. And having come back from the dead with this new idea of making, with this idea of making new choices outside of Batman's life, the character of the talent represents a similar idea in a lot of creepy ways. He's come back from the dead and is serving this powerful force, and it all has a strange legacy behind it as well. 
Some of them have ties like that, and other ones like Birds of Prey happen in these big, fun romps where the characters have to fight off the talons in the middle of another story that was happening. But it forwards that story, too. The story you've been reading in Birds of Prey doesn't get put on hold. This beat with the talons pushes it forward a bit, so I try to leave it up to all the writers to what they want to do, wanted if they wanted, to tie it, if they wanted to tie it in at all. Some writers, like J.H. Williams on Batwoman, were right in the middle of a story that couldn't be interrupted, so we just gave them the room to avoid this, while the ones that did want to tie in could decide the level of intimacy the issues had. The only stipulation was first to try and make the story personal to your character in some way, whether that be emotional and thematic like in Red Hood, or the way it was in Nightwing where the, there was some connection like, to the character's past. And the second stipulation was that the tal- since the talent could come from any era of Gotham's history, so if you loved the 1950s, you could pick a 50s talent, and we had a had chart laying out the particulars of a story of the history of the city from t- any time. <laughs> then the hope was that you'd open up a window to that period of history for a moment. Kyle did a great job with that with the late 1800s, and pretty much everyone did a similar twist. Gail Simone's is one of my favorites since her Batgirl opens up in the 1940s with this great historical anecdote. Yeah, Gail's is really good. So on the one hand, we, ha- we wanted to have them tell a story that was important to their character, though the degree of importance was up to them. And the- on the other hand, we wanted to encourage-, encourage them to open a window into Gotham's history that we, w- that we don't get to see often. In each of your books, we've also got some smaller threads that seem to be simmering until they can swing back around later in the event. Bruce has got his damage... Bruce has got this damage to his eyes from being held captive by the owls, and he's literally on the verge of being blind as a bat. Mm. And in Nightwing, Dick has some someone out there trying to pin a murder on him, which hasn't quite gone public yet. What can you guys say about these smaller elements in terms of a theme or overall arc that readers should be aware of? In my case, I think these things may mimic everyday life in a lot of ways. We were talking before we started the interview about how you guys got back from C2E2 and went right into doing your taxes. Things come up and interrupt your plan. The subplots we weave in and out. In this case, the murder committed with Dick's Eskrima sticks are connected to the idea from Night of the Owls that Dick Grayson was supposed to be a killer. As I really developed that subplot in issues 10, 11, and 12, it's something Nightwing comments on. It's there to strengthen what's already happening in the main story from an emotional standpoint and for me the themes function in a major way like the idea of vision that's a very big theme in this story and there's the and there's the idea that bruce admits that he felt the city was watching him his whole life he used to think that that was a benevolent feeling to that but now he feels the city is a stranger or worse an enemy watching him and waiting to attack the way an owl would one of the fun things about a story like this is working through those themes and having them come to a fruition when you do a long story, long story form. One of the fun things about Kyle's run has been that even though there are arcs, there's this longer story building and accumulating meaning over time. It's almost like the snowball effect where everything is going to pay off down the line. All right, so that's the end of the interview. Now, I know this doesn't really seem to have to do with this, but I... I'm kind of interested in the fact that, um, you know, they keep referencing how all of the Bat writers are involved except for J.H. Williams um, with Batwoman. And somehow Tony Daniel got into the mix way down the line after it was already announced that Detective Comics was not going to be a part of it. He joined up and said, yeah, okay, I'll, uh, I'll do Night of Owls. 
Now, the interesting thing was the argument of why he wasn't joining the Knight of Owls crossover was because Bruce Wayne couldn't be in more than one place at once. <laughs> now, I've said this before, so it's going to seem like I'm repeating myself over and over again, but I'm still waiting to hear exactly why Tony Daniel decided to change his mind. What's even more interesting is Scott Snyder, as we'll learn with Batman number 8, and they mentioned in this interview, you know, he has a problem with his eyesight. So, he has a problem with his eyesight. Also in Batman number 8, he is basically, the Wayne Manor is under siege, and Bruce Wayne is defending Wayne Manor. But somehow, at the same exact time, Detective Comics has Batman trying to save Jeremiah Arkham. Now, not only does that, not only does Tony Daniel get a strike for saying, I don't want to join it because Batman can't be at more than one place at once, but he gets another strike for basically proving his point wrong, but then he gets the third strike for proving <laughs> his point wrong and not following along with the actual events in the other books. Now, it's not to say that you can't have Batman in more than one place at once, but in my opinion, if you're going to have a crossover, even if it's not a crossover and it's a tie-in or it's just an event that's taking place in multiple books, whatever they want to call it, and you have the main title where the story, this crossover is deriving from, the character has a problem with his eyes, that should probably be a story element in all of the titles, at least for those issues part of the cro- as part of the crossover. Well, I mean, don't Daniel's run feels so far removed from everything else. Um, I mean, there's questions already, like who's if if uh, who is Arkham Asylum, who is not, where's the Joker? Would would that that do kind of maybe tangentially run into the other books? But there was a whole continuity thing, like like at one point in Batman's career, is this storyline taking place, and when that was seemingly solved. It's like, well, does this connect to this or that or whatever? To me, it's like Daniel is sort of like in his own little world, making his own little story. He's been doing that since he since he was on Batman, um, and I think the fact that like this is the one big story in the DC DC universe as of now that has a crossover. I think that maybe maybe DC told him one thing and then like just reneged on it, and he and his, and there's not much he can do do on it do about it, you know, at this late stage of the game. Um, it just it just sounds like 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 DC decided one thing and then decided the other. I'm not sure if I can necessarily blame Daniel in this because when you have your own storyline, it is you know kind of annoying that they want to like kind of truncate it for this one thing. Although I would I would say that like this would be a very good good thing for Detective Comics, you know, because I currently think it blows. But uh, I mean, that's my take on it. Mm-hmm. All right, and then the only other bit of news we have is on April 24th. It was announced that uh, Nightwing number eight will be heading back to printers for a second printing. Um, the issue sold out in under two days, and the new printing will be in stores May 23rd. That is all of the comic news. Like I said, not very much. So let's get right into our comic book reviews. And hey, why don't we kick it off with the great book, Batman Odyssey number seven? <laughs> okay, uh, Batman Odyssey number seven, the final issue of this dreadful series, and uh, 
I can pretty much sum up the issue with a line of dialogue from the book. And uh, I think Neil Adams was getting a bit meta here when he said, I'm sorry for the lameness of my words. But uh, for the actual issue, it's essentially Batman running through the sewers, finding Sensei in Arkham Asylum, and beating him up. So it's a big fight. Then we see the shock and horror when Batman shoots him in the chest. He blows up. But of course he didn't really shoot him. It was all a ruse. He uses prosthetics as a... And it was all part of a plan that he had with Sensei back when they were fighting in Middle Earth or wherever the hell they were, where there were dinosaurs roaming around, where he sent, uh, Sensei essentially drinks, his, drinks some elixir, we're assuming it's from the Lazarus Pit, turns into a baby, and then Batman gives him to a family to look after him. And, uh, yeah, Batman in front of all the inmates of Arkham Asylum is seen to have shot someone, so they all now fear him. And uh, then it just ends with Batman talking to Superman. You know, they're having a good time joking around, and Superman flies off with a swoosh. The end. Hooray! Alright, um, I'm going to start off my review by saying the only good thing about this issue is that it's the last one. <sighs> Joe nailed it right on the head when he said that comment about how uh, Batman apologizes for his words because they seem lame. They've seemed lame since issue number one. It was no surprise that the person he was talking to was Clark Kent or <laughs> Superman. Um, it never was. We, we guessed that from the very... Well, I shouldn't say from the very beginning, but we pretty much had it dead on ever since the second volume started up. Um, I can't understand what the point of the first volume was. Um when it relates to this volume. I really don't understand why this series even happened. I will give Neil Adams credit for his art in this issue. His art was was uh, was better than the previous issues. Um, specifically, at least, well, I should say, at least the first couple pages were where it was just Batman and he was jumping around and moving around through the sewers. It was good. Then all of a sudden we get uh, a bunch of stupid scenes that, to me, seemed as if he stole things from previous work that he already did. For instance, when they're standing in Arkham City and you see all of the uh, all of the villains locked in their cells behind them, that's literally like a blurred-out print of what he used in Volume 1 when Batman was at Arkham Asylum. Uh, so, it's... I... I I don't know how to say, please let the sales speak for themselves. This book is bad. It's not selling. Neil Adams was great back in the 70s. I'm not knocking anything that he's done in the past. But giving him the opportunity to write a story was probably not such a great idea. Um, Overall, this issue just was horrible. The fact that we have Robin egging Superman on the entire time. Is he going to do the swoosh? Is he going to do the swoosh? Is he going to do the swoosh? Really? Really? That's what you're concerned about? You're concerned about a guy doing a swoosh. Can you be any more of a fanboy? You're supposed to be a professional sidekick. I'm sorry. That's just like... Why? Why would Robin be doing that? 
Why would Robin be looking at Superman saying, oh, I have the utmost respect for you, please. Change into your, your superhero costume and swoosh away from me, please. Really, it was just an excuse so that Neil Adams could draw Superman at the very end, and I thought it was bad. Um, I'm going to give the series overall a half a battering, and that's only for the small bits of art that were actually worthwhile. Um, but this issue, I'm going to give one out of five batterings because I did like the art in the beginning, and that's it. I'm not even going to pretend like I have a half a mind to talk about this, the contents of this issue. Uh, there were one thing, oh, and twenty-two things worth of interest. First of all, that's not Killer Croc; that's a lizard. There's a difference between a lizard <laughs> and a crocodile. Get it right. This is you know what I'm talking about. It's like, come on, Adams, you. Um, I thought it was interesting. I, I think it's interesting that Batman would have his villains think he, he's a killer to kind of scare them. I think this. An, I actually do think it's an interesting idea, and he's done it before. I thought there was an one or two interesting lines, like he says, "I am your lifetime's enemy, and I will find you." I kind of like that. You know, it's sort of like approaching Daniel, Tony Danielisms. Um, and some of the faces were interesting. I, I like, I like uh, the Scarecrow, like, no, 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 man. <laughs> I don't know. I, I actually thought that was kind of funny. Um, but again, I, I don't know what's going on. I don't know. Who, who, what's up with the family at the, end of the, at the end of the book with, like, the mom and the dad and the little baby? Like, I, I probably shouldn't have been paying attention, but who cares? It's, it's Batman Odyssey. But I don't know what they're, why they are there. Um... I agree with the whole Swish thing. It's like, shut up. <laughs> and when, he, when Clark calls his hat the Adams hat, uh, okay. Does Neil Adams have a hat like that? Um, there were one or two instances of art that I, I thought were actually Neil Adams on his game. Like, the last image of Superman is actually kind of cool. And I do, as an idea, I kind of like Batman telling him about an adventure and it being revealed to Superman in the end. It wasn't a surprise, but I think it's an interesting concept. But overall, like, the the legacy of the series and, and the and the pure, you know, nonsense that, that permeated it throughout just it just it just it can't help but hamper your enjoyment of it. And um, all I can think of is not what happened in the issue or not what happened in the series, but the fact that it's over. We never have to speak of it again. One out of five batter ranks. So long. <laughs> yeah, I kind of agree. Even though I've I've said that I've kind of been enjoying this series, the overriding emotion that I got from this was, yeah, it's the last one. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, there are a couple of things which interested me in this, like some of the art, and uh, I think the concept of Batman appearing to be a killer in front of his enemies to frighten them is an interesting one. I just think that it's still so against what Batman stands for that he wouldn't do it. And, I mean, it wouldn't work, because, like, the first person, like, Joker would probably just end up killing someone the next day, and then as soon as they realise, oh, wait, he didn't actually mean it, you know, it'll go back to normal, and it would all have been a waste of time, but I, there are just too many little bits to pick apart in this, and I, I really don't want to be here all night, but I mean, I think the main one is just the, the, the strangeness of Robin throwing Batman the gun, which you would have thought, you know, that would be flagging up some warning flags there, you know. He throws him the gun, which he just had in the cape, which I didn't realise had pockets, and then the shock he has when Batman shoots Sensai, and it's like, you just threw him a gun, and, you know, he never carries one that... It doesn't make any sense. Just the, the five, three of... There's like three to five solid pages of Batman just shouting with the text getting louder and louder, and Batman's face getting less human and scarier. 
it's 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 a strange book, but I'm glad it's over. Um, I definitely won't be getting the collected edition. I'm glad it's over. One out of five batterings. You know, I'm going to miss it when it's gone. No, probably not. Um, I never knew what the heck was going on, so I'm happy also that it is over. So everyone agreed. You guys need to take mark of this, that everyone agreed on this show for once. It's like a happy family. I did, you know, when did the sensei turn into the collector? Do you remember the collector and how he, he kidnapped Superman? I don't know if that was only in the animated series or elsewhere. I know this isn't a Superman story. But anyways, he was gathering all of Batman's robes. And I thought that was very weird. It's like he no. needed an audience for it. No. What he, rid of Arkham Asylum. Well, he collected them, though. He put them in little tubes. No, that's the cells of Arkham Asylum. <laughs> <laughs> See, I still don't know what's going on. Um, the double splash page of all the villains with their appalled faces was pretty humorous. I'm surprised that all the villains are so shocked that Batman finally went berserk and killed somebody. You would think that they would have seen it coming at some point. I mean, even Joker always said, you know, you'll you'll break some point. Uh, I also think instead of fearing him, they would almost grin, you know, realizing that he finally did it. He finally broke. I cannot believe that of all or that all of this with the sensei, you know, this whole story comes down to a battle and then a trick. And what was the one answer that the sensei wanted to know? Did we ever find out? Did I miss that? Because I actually read those pages. Um, finally, why did Batman tell all of this to Clark? If it, can find, if it can never be written. And I'm quite sure he would not get a Pulitzer for it, to be honest, if this is the writing that he would use. Why, <laughs> <laughs> why not just write or record it you know, yourself, pull Batman from Batman and Robin? So that, that was a little strange. Um... I gave it a 2 out of 5, I guess, just to be nice to it. So, 2 out of 5 batterings. Alright, so Batman Odyssey. Oh, oh boy, is it great to have you go away. Um, A total of 1 out of 5 batterings. (laughs) Alright, let's move into our next book with Batman Beyond Unlimited, number 3, The Batman Chapters. (laughs) Yeah. Please let it be a wrong number. Right now? I'm on my way to meet Dana. Can't wait? No. Matt stands out again. (sighs) Great. What's his gripe this time? Blow it all up! Blow it up! Okay. Um, Let's see. Batman Beyond Issue 3, kind of. The Trigger Man, Part 3 or 4, Stan Mad. Uh, after a brief scene from the uh, Russian Gunrunners, we see Terry McGinnis, a.k.a. Batman of the Future, holding back Mad Stan, you know, basically saying that he's going to blow up anybody and everybody he can to get his little dog Boom Boom back. Uh, they tussle for a bit. Terry tries to taser him with, like, ten fingers worth of tasers, but he just shrugs it off. His, he's big and stupid. Um, and while he's trying to contain him, he even offers to find the dog for him. Matt Stan says, do I look stupid to you? And he's like, well, I'm hoping that you wouldn't guess that. As Stan straps a bomb to his face, Batman manages to, to take it off, but the explosion does knock him out for a bit, and Stan escapes. Bruce, back at the Batcave, tells him uh, about the Russian gunrunners that he's in cahoots with, one Boris Dubov from Central Russia. Terry tries to spend the night trying to find him and Mad Stan, but 
it, it's a fruitless venture. So uh, that night ends. We cut next to a scene at a, a place called Rhino's Chili, where Max is trying to tell Terry about the Undercloud subplot, but he's kind of wrapped up in his own problems with Bruce, and they're not really getting the right words out. All of a sudden, Dana shows up crying and says, Terry, my brother Doug... He's, you know, he fractured my dad's skull. Um, he was a joker when he was when he was younger, and I'm afraid he's into it now. You got to help me. You help use Mr. Wayne's money and his connections to try to find him. So Terry says, "All right, look, this guy might be connected to the Joker's uh, in issue one, or uh, the Joker's from Star City. Uh, I'm gonna go try to find them right now." Uh, Bruce tells him that while he understands, there's a meeting going down between the Russians and Mad Stan right this second at the. Um, at this old supermarket on the industrial levels. So it's a basic, you know, conflict of interest to either go after uh, Dana's brother Doug or go stop Mass and the Russians right now. Make a decision and make it quick to be continued. All right, Batman Beyond Unlimited number three, the Batman chapters. Now, obviously, the reason why this story was so short was mm-hmm. actually because uh, Superman, Superman Beyond debuted in Batman Beyond Unlimited. And uh, it took up a good chunk of this print copy, um, leaving really just one week worth of... Now, for those of you who aren't aware, who, who don't understand what's actually going on with these this uh, Batman Beyond stuff and the entire Beyond universe, essentially every single week there is a digital chapter that comes out related to the Beyond universe. Batman Beyond, Superman Beyond, or Justice League Beyond. One of the three. For the first two months, it was split right down the middle. Two weeks of Batman, two weeks of Justice League. But this is actually the month that Superman debuts. And with that, that means, well, this month Superman had two weeks and Justice League and Batman each had one week. So therefore, there was less in the month than there would normally be. I don't know exactly how they're planning on doing this in the future, as far as the breakdown of how much is in each one. But irregardless, Batman had one week, so it was a very small amount. It was essentially like a half of a issue. And uh, with that being said, let's talk about this. Um, we said this last time, it's nice to see Mad Stan. Um, but the thing is, not a whole lot. there was not really a whole lot of movement with the Mad Stan storyline, because there just wasn't enough time in this issue. Now, what there was a lot of movement on was not only Max, but also um, Dana. Uh, Dana comes back to Terry and asks him for help. That was nice to see. Um, but at, at the same point, who else is Dana really going to turn to? Now, she doesn't know that Terry's Batman, but at the same point, again, who else is she really going to turn to? She doesn't have anybody else who's loaded with money or has access to people with money like uh, Bruce Wayne. Um, it was really interesting to find out kind of what hap- what's going on with Max and the organization that's basically like blackmailing her um, because we see her small amount of work that she did way back in the last series, which was almost a year ago. Um, that small amount of work that she did for them caused a a grid malfunction on the power grid or a malfunction in the power grid and because of that something happened but we don't know what happened we don't know what it what what it was for we just know what had happened and she knows that it has something to do with what she did for them um although i'm still interested to know if she was to actually tell terry how that would play out as far as 
her being told before, she wouldn't be able to tell anybody. So, um, overall, Norm Brayfogle's art was great. Um, it was kind of odd during the scene with... Um, during the scene with Max, Dana, and Terry sitting at the diner, um, if you look at Terry's face a couple times, it almost looks like a character out of Archie Comics. Ironic. <laughs> uh, I, I don't... <laughs> but, uh... That being said, I thought this was pretty good. It just It didn't have a whole lot happening, but I think that has to do with just the small amount of page numbers that this chapter, or, well, this the, the Batman stuff was actually designated this month. So overall, I'm going to give it three out of five batterings. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if you know that, but you know that his, before this he was working on Archie, Archie, right? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I do. <laughs> just, just, just saying. I figured you did. Um, I agree. I agree with Dustin um, in that you know there isn't much that happened here just by the happenstance of what was going on with this Batman Beyond Unlimited thing with Superman and the Justice League. But I did enjoy uh, what was going on, and honestly, I kind of like the the anthology kind of storyline storytelling with this issue um i didn't really so much mind that it was short although i was wondering if there was something else i had to read to get more content and what we got was fine i'm not gonna say it was like the best thing ever but i, I enjoyed i i'm still enjoying where their story's going norm brayfogle is still a master and he's not nearly as extreme as he was back in the late 80s and early 90s like if you compare this to like last arkham it's nowhere near as like hyper kinetic and like you know Batman was going crazy in that story. It's not like that. But at the same time, the restraints that are, that are on his art still fit the story very well. It has a still has a cartoony look, but when it looks less cartoony, a little more realistic, it looks really nice. Like there are nice scenes of like of Mad Sand like throwing Batman around. And um I agree with Dustin, there is a bit of a cartoony look or stylized look in the in the Rhino's chili scene. But I still I still like it. It's not what you're used to with Norman Brayfogle, but I still like the art. The storyline's fine. Um, you know, not much happened, although Terry now knows uh, something's wrong with her brother, Doug, Danny's brother's Doug, and is about to do something. And um, I just, I really liked how the issue ended. It was very, very, very Spider-Man-like, where it's like, you know, it's where Bruce tells Terry, it's calls like these that you have to make when you wear the mask. Make it, make it quick. I love that, that the issue ended like that. That was, that was really cool. And, it was very, very like I don't know, cinematic. I thought. So overall, for this for this installment of Batman Beyond, I'll continue to train and give it a four out of five better ranks. I also like this issue. Again, yeah, it's pretty short but interesting. I thought, I thought it kind of went through a, a few things. It it wasn't uh, like it didn't go slowly. It was it was well paced and it had a, I think enough information in there to keep us interested. Uh, I enjoyed the Mad Stand scene. I think that was probably the best drawn in the book. Um, again, I'm not so keen on a lot of the, the facial expressions, but I, I think in that scene, um, some of the more detailed things are actually pretty nice. Uh, I think we've, we've established that this isn't in the uh, the current universe, because if you look in the the background of the first time you see Bruce Wayne in this book, it's mm-hmm. the uh, the Nightwing costume with the blue splash instead of the red. So <laughs> he could always revert back <laughs> after Night of Owls, just because I've had it with you. I'm going back to blue. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, yeah. The uh, the chilly scene. Some of the the facial expressions repulsed me. They were so bad <laughs> that I'm not sure I could do much better. So uh, pretty interesting issue. Um, yeah, it's definitely got me excited for the next one. 
I'm not sure what how Bruce feels about uh, Terry just going like, yeah, drop everything we're doing. I need to help my ex girlfriend because I want to get back with her. But uh, <laughs> I don't know. Three out of five batterings. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I really like Batman Beyond. I'm really enjoying it. And I just caught up on, well, I read the limited series with, can you repeat that? Adam Beechin. Yeah, I was trying to think of the villain. It just like, Tommy Elliot used to be, Hush, there we go, the Hush. So I'm trying to get caught up and, and have all the storylines kind of connect to this one. So I'm as in the know as the gentleman on this show. Uh, but I like Mad Stan. He's such a kooky character, and sometimes he's too much. I remember him being sometimes over the top in the animated series, but that's just, you know, how he is. And I just like how losing Boom Boom has really put him even more over the edge, if it is possible. Uh, and it's really created a, a dire situation. And it's so dire, in fact, that Terry is willing to work with him at some point. But, of course, Stan knows better than that. It's also interesting and tragic, I think, that how, how Max really wants to come clean about what she's been doing, which I'm so confused about, but I'll get there. Uh, but, you know, Dana gets in the way. I think that's always going to happen. You know, the two friends and then the girlfriend's going to get in the way and then the guy's going to... Obviously, want to help the girlfriend first. Uh, I feel like, you know, this is certainly a theme that we've seen before. And then Terry really wants to help Dana because he loves her. But Bruce forces him to see the mission at hand. Stay on task. You know, this is just such a flashback, I think, to Bruce's career. Uh, it's really mimicking here because he certainly had these moments wanting to help a woman he loved, like Catwoman. But not the Catwoman that we see now because he just leaves her on roofs. Uh, but putting the mission first. And I think it's great to see Terry's career mimic Bruce's a little bit. But at the same time, Terry is still his own character and he's still forging his own path, which is great. So some commonality, but um, I give it four out of five batterings. All right. So that is going to give Batman Beyond Unlimited number three, the Batman chapters, a total of three and a half out of five batterings. Let's move into our next book. Birds of Prey, number eight. Yeah! Looks like we're in this together. If you call me girlfriend, I'm going to dropkick you into the next county. Now don't go all sentimental on me. Ah! Birds of Prey, number eight. A Far Cry. Writer, Dwayne Swarzynski. Art, Jesus Saez. Finishes, Javier Pina. And covers, Jun Chung. The issue begins at the Cornwall Hotel in Gotham three days prior with a dead body under a sheet and an as-of-yet-unknown GCPD detective named Gagemi. Gangemi. The victim's facial structure was completely shattered, and his print let officers know that he was one of theirs. Security footage revealed a young blonde woman was the only person to enter the victim's room. Guests on floors 10 through 12 reported an agonized scream that broke window panes and glassware, and some members of the hotel called 911 to report an earthquake. Gangemi knew the real cause was the canary cry, and Dinah Lance had struck again. Time to burn her. Flash forward to the Cornwall Hotel now, ablaze with fire, and Batgirl, Katana, and Canary looking at a hologram. It seems they have come to the hotel on a tip, a man claiming to have information about a murder that would interest Dinah greatly. Instead, they are met with a burning room. Dinah tells the other two to get out and she will take care of it, while the hologram from Dinah's past, who knows what that means, tells her basically that this is because of the death of the man in the hotel room three days ago. Infiltrators engage. 
Out of nowhere comes a man dressed only in a fundoshi, whose entire body is coated with a substance that makes him impervious to bullets and blades named flesh, and a member of the Yakuza. A man who would give Garfield Lens a run for his money in his love of fire and the desire to destroy Ivy, not to mention is a little dramatic, named Napalm. A guy with a strange apparatus pumping chemicals into his brain named Head, apparently with the power to never be knocked out, and an unidentified man in a tin suit. Since Dorothy's not here, I assume that it's just a plain agent. Dinah says that she will come peacefully if the others can be let go, but an inhibitor collar, gee, haven't seen one of those since X-Men, is put on her to prevent her from using her canary cry and allowing her to come to South Dakota quietly. See, I got a little Marvel thing in there. (laughs) Elsewhere, at undisclosed location 8374 in South Dakota, Ev is breaking into a safe house trying to go around the security measures in hopes of looking for information about Slash 4 Dinah. Unfortunately, someone is already there. Back at the hotel, Batgirl is able to overcome Head and drops in on Dinah and the Tin Man. Napalm torches more of the place, still asking where Ivy is, and Flesh is still attacking Katana and accusing her of stupidity since she continues to slash at him with her blade. But she was really just pushing him back so that he would fall through a hole and create a distraction in the fight below. The three birds flee, drawing the infiltrators to the lower levels. Dinah feels guilty that her friends are risking their lives for her as Flesh says they cannot return without Canary in tow. Back at the undisclosed location, Ev and the unidentified man are at an impasse, and Ev asks why he is so interested in Canary. He explains that the birds made some headlines that made his bosses uncomfortable. He also reveals that Canary was once a spy, and Ev used to work for the penguin. He hands the information over to Ev, and she sees the victim, the husband of Dinah Lance, Kurt Lance. Back at the hotel, Canary and Batgirl are running when they are cornered by Head and Flesh. Katana gets a drop on Napalm, cuts the leads to his fuel, and pushes him down an elevator shaft, proving all along that he was vital to the operation. Napalm explodes at the bottom, giving Dinah and Batgirl the opportunity they need to leap out of the window, and Katana exits by way of a different floor from the elevator shaft. At ground level... Dinah gets the inhibitor collar collar off and tries to explain something to the other birds, that she wasn't framed, but that she killed her husband three years ago. Next up, Court of the Owls. All right, Birds of Prey, number eight. This was kind of interesting because maybe it's just me, but I'm having a hard time understanding exactly how we went from the last issue into this issue. (laughs) The last issue that we had had Katana killing the guy and then finding out that Choke was not actually the person. Somehow, this issue right here picks up exactly in a different place. Um, we're thrown right into the middle of what appears to be a different storyline that isn't continuing the Choke thing. The Choke storyline is still yet unresolved, and theres I don't know exactly, obviously, when the Choke storyline is going to get resolved, or if it ever will, um, because this picks up, and now we're learning about Black Canary's past, which is great because I want to know about Black Canary's past, but at the same time, what what the heck was the point of doing the whole choke storyline for seven issues if you're if you don't finish it? I enjoyed the art. I actually really enjoyed the art in, in a lot of different degrees, and I think that. The, the art does not accentuate the women as, as uh, 
over the top as uh, some of the other books out there. Thank God. But at the same time, going back to the story, it did, you know, it's like I said, it's nice to know a little bit more about this this hidden secret that Black Canaries had. The issue is, I don't know that this was the right time to bring it up. It would have been different if they would have brought this up earlier, like maybe in the middle of the choke storyline, and somehow it got worked in the middle of the choke storyline. I have no idea, because I honestly, I can't figure out who these people are that are trying to apprehend them, other than somebody who works for the this organization that's trying to capture Black Canary, which, by what I got out of it, is somebody in the government. But... Then again, how many government organizations are there out there where they're recruiting or using metahumans to work? Like, and I know of one because I read it every month, Suicide Squad. <laughs> so, I, I, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to say that the issue is bad. It's not. It's just the timing of the issue seems like a really bad placement. And I don't know that that's necessarily the writer or the artist's fault. Obviously, I don't think it's the artist's fault. He draws what he's given. I don't know that Dwayne Swarzynski's idea was to actually lay it out like this, especially since next month we're going right into the Night of Owls. How are we going to end with what's happening in this issue to then jump to Night of Owls, and then somehow now we have a standalone Night of Owls issue. We will have two storylines that still have to be resolved, the Choke storyline and and Black Canary saying how, how, why she killed her husband. So, I mean, it's just, it seems like editorial should have adjusted some things here. Maybe use this month to resolve the Choke storyline, then went into Night of Owls, and then did the history of Black Canary and the secret that she's holding. That's, I mean, that's my only complaint, is I just think the placement was bad, because I started reading this thinking to myself, wait, did I forget to read the last issue? <laughs> and I didn't, because I went back and I looked, and lo and behold, um, no, it just it jumped into something else. So, I mean, overall, the art was good, and I think the story was good. I just think the placement of it was bad, and I'm not going to give it a mark down because of that. Finding out that Ev worked for Penguin, that was kind of a surprise. I didn't actually see that coming. Yeah, so I mean, overall, I think it was a good issue. I just think that placement was bad. So I'm going to give it three and a half out of five batterings. My entire enjoyment of this issue was sort of like the weight on that enjoyment was the fact that we ended the last issue with a very big cliffhanger. And the guy that we, that we thought was the bad guy that I decapitated, it turns out he wasn't him. Whoops. And, like, you know, to be continued. And, like, we start this off where they're, they're fighting all these supervillains. And, like, and, and like, I'm, I'm like, like, Dustin, did I miss an issue? Did I miss something? What's going on? And halfway through the issue, I'm thinking, well, they're obviously going to get back to this at some point. They're going to mention maybe this is, like, a, uh, maybe there'll be a flashback. Maybe this is a time skip ahead. They'll mention somewhere. But the issue ends with Dinah saying, I killed my husband! The next Court of Owls. And I was like, are you dizzy, blood? No, no. There's there's a whole there's a whole storyline that you need to resolve. It's I don't, I don't know. Um, I still like this issue for what it was. I mean, I there's always the the odd issue that I, I you know when I go to my comic shop and I pick up a random back issue, it's like it feels like it's in the middle of a storyline. I can enjoy it on its own merits, and this is sort of what is here. But the fact that this is completely like a not almost a non sequitur towards the storyline they were telling is a bit of an annoyance, to be honest. Uh, that being said, there were a lot of things I liked in this. Um, the art's very consistent. 
Um, like Dustin, I appreciate like them not uh, exploiting the female form. And actually, I like the fact that Katana got a lot of uh, action in this issue. I kind of wish we got more of her because it feels like we've gotten a lot from a lot of characterization from everybody except for her. And all she does is say, "Yes, my husband's in my sword." Isn't that kooky? Um, but I, 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 so I still want more explanation of her, as to what makes her tick. But I like that she showed, you know, she kind of showed off what she got here. Um, there was a funny scene where. Uh, Ev was breaking into that uh, undisclosed location number eight thousand three hundred seventy four, mm-hmm. and um, when she gets the drop, when the guy gets the drop on her, she, she makes this really funny like "oh crap" look on her face, where her, like her eyes just bug out and her and her mouth just kind of like just dips. And it's like "oh boy." Um, so like for what this issue was going for, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the action. The storyline was okay. It's kind of intriguing with like you know Canary's past. I just wish that like. I don't like when comics do this. I don't like... Because usually, when I was younger and I would read stuff like this, I would always figure, well, obviously I missed something, or there's something I'm not getting, or there's something that I don't understand. And, you know, I would feel like, like Dustin did, there must be something that we did that, that we weren't paying attention or whatever. That's why it doesn't make sense. But, no, the, the fact of the matter is that this is a total, like, like, gear shift from the last story. There's an issue that's resolved, and they don't even mention it. And that's honestly really annoying. But, uh... Besides that, this this was a solid issue. I can't let go of the fact that it it is is totally like you know such a change from the last issue. But I still enjoy this for what it was. So I'll give it three and a half out of five batterings. Uh, I really enjoyed this issue. Again, like everyone else, it it definitely seemed uh, out of place or just like a sudden jump from something to something else. It is great to start seeing some of the uh, Canary's background. I wonder if the placement of it had anything to do with the fact that it's Court of Owls next month and they needed a one-shot. Um, because this is... I guess this could be considered a one-shot. There's definitely a story to come out of it, but I think as a standalone issue, um, just pl- sort of planting the seeds for other storylines, it works well. These new characters, these new villains are pretty interesting. Um kind of Gail Simone-ish almost I feel like especially uh, Flesh just, it, it seems a bit of a ridiculous concept but I, I feel you yeah but uh, be, some of the other ones like uh, Napalm I enjoyed Napalm in the issue just you know with his uh, I, th- I think everyone the thing about this book is everyone seems very human I think like when Napalm says, I don't really feel like a vital part of this operation and things, mm. instead of everyone just sort of fighting, kicking ass, and, you know, it just being like a, a TNA book because they're all girls and all female, whatever the PC thing is to say. <laughs> and, female. uh, female! <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, just, you know, just a, a female fight book. But um, no, it, there's there's character development in there, and I, I feel like everyone kind of has their say and is played out. They're, they're all independent of each other. They all have their own voice, and I think that's a good thing, especially with those sort of subtle lines and things in there. Uh, I thought the art the art was really nice. It's going to be a shame to not have Hazu Sayers on the book, even though he hasn't uh, been the most consistent in terms of. Uh, reliability but when he does do the work it's very good even with the finishes by Pena and uh, it's lucky that they have such a or good that they have such a similar art style but um, 
yeah, I, I did really enjoy the issue. I I like what it was doing. It's just it's a shame that it seemed like such a jump because it definitely took something out of it. But uh, it's it's going to be interesting seeing these storylines play out in the future, and I'm looking forward to seeing more about Black Canary and Starling as well. And like Don was saying, hopefully we'll find out a bit more about Katana in the future as well. But I'll give this four and a half out of five batterings. I really enjoyed it. Um, not to toot my own horn, but I do now on Batgirl to Oracle, I have an interview up with uh, Dwayne Swarzynski, and I talked to him about this book. And obviously it's mostly based on issues one through seven, uh, but he does go into what what we're going to see, and he does have some character spotlights coming up, so we'll learn more about these particular characters. So if you're interested in this book and you'd like to have a listen and you're not annoyed with me already, then, <laughs> I, yeah, I just want to recommend that. But anyways, I completely agree with uh, Dustin, you know, got to, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, my main problem is that we just completely left the choke storyline and leapt into the middle it really seems like the middle of another story. I mean, what about the cliffhanger we're left with at the end of the previous issue with Katana saying Cahill was not really choked? Do you remember that? Where Dinah was basically in Cahill's apartment ripping everything to shreds. She and Becker have a moment, and then Katana calls her and says, hey, guess what? My husband said that that was not choked. I mean, what about that? What about Ivy? Remember, she had that suggestion in her head that the plant half of her and the human half can't coexist, and so she She's basically shriveled up and dying somewhere. Who even knows? So, you know, I, I don't know. Um, what I did like about this is when you think about this ragtag group of, of men here, it's kind of like a male bird of prey team. Birds of prey. Um, you know, guys with different powers and abilities, not necessarily wholly good, right? Just like the birds are. We're not sure if they're, um, I mean, they're trying to be good, right? But they're a shady organization. Other heroes don't know how to treat them. But certainly an organization under the leadership of some other group. And then each of the birds uh, had, I think, a dancing partner that matched them or opposed them well. And they were they were key or they were... They tried to bring that out. Uh, Katana, you know, with Flesh, he was a member of Yakuza, um, had, I guess, had the inability to be knocked out, which is, I don't know, kind of the dumbest superpower ever, but apparently Batgirl can knock people out really well, which I haven't read an issue yet where that happens, but okay. And uh, Dino was, <laughs> well, it's true. Uh, Napalm really wanted to, I guess, burn Ivy's leaves. And then um, Dino was kind of going up against the Tin Man, which we didn't really get too much um, with him. Um, but, you know, it also reminded me of um, an amalgamation of different characters, just kind of like combining several pieces of different characters. And it reminded me of this fighting game. They came out in 2005. I don't know if you guys will remember this. It was called, I'm sorry, it was called Marvel Nemesis Rise of the Imperfects. And it had like core Marvel characters like Spider-Man oh, yeah. and Iron Man and things. But then there were like these other weird characters that they tried to build into this uh, game. And they just had strange implants or powers and really strange pasts as well. I remember this ballerina and something tragic happened and then she had like these scissor arms. So it just reminds me of those. Um, Napalm, I thought, was just obnoxious to me. He was so needy. He kept asking, am I important? I don't feel important. It was like an emo villain. I don't know. The hologram, what does it mean that he's connected to Dinah's past? 
Um, and then this whole Ev thing. The Ev thing was very confusing. Number one, how did she find this location in San uh, South Dakota? What information exactly is she trying to get? Uh, it seems like anything she gets would only be incriminating to Dinah. And then, of course, she finds out that Ev has, or that Dinah has a husband. And that doesn't make sense because we already found this out last issue. It was revealed by Choke, remember? And so why is Ev so shocked? It's like there was a mind wipe and everyone forgot everything. And then we come to this issue and then it's revealed again for more drama. I'm not so sure about that. Um, and speaking of Ev, yeah, what an interesting surprise to learn that she worked for Penguin. And Dwayne Sprzynski actually, he said that you know there is a little hint into her past that was revealed soon and it was a very small detail and so i caught this and he gave me kudos for that but yeah so what does this mean are we going to build on that and find out more about her but overall i mean it was an interesting story i guess but i have more questions i think than are answered it was more confusing rather than going on the choke storyline or building off of that and then just like Dustin said, now we're going to be interrupted with Court of Owls. So even this is not going to be wrapped up. But I just wonder, who are these people? How do they tie the Birds of Prey? How do they tie to Dinah? I give this 3.5 out of 5 batterings. Alright, so that means Birds of Prey number 8 gets a total of 3.5 out of 5 batterings. Let's move into our next book. Batman the Dark Knight number 8. I want the Joker. From one professional to another. If you're trying to scare somebody, pick a better spot. From this height, fall wouldn't kill me. I'm counting on it. Where is he? Batman the Dark Knight, issue 8. Trapped in Wonderland. Horribly written by Joe Harris, (laughs) maybe. Illustrated by, not David Finch, but Ed Benes. Uh, we begin this issue with Batman and, and Commissioner Gordon at the Gotham subway, viewing a scene of horrific, mass, uh, horrific madness and death. Uh, all, all these people that are on the subway, like train riders and officials and all things, are, are bloody and dead. Uh, and according to forensics, they did that to themselves. Back at the Batcave, Batman and Alfred are trying to figure out uh, what drove, drove, drove people to kill themselves. Alfred says, do you think that the city did it? And Batman's like, maybe. Next, at the Gotham City Police Department, Lieutenant Forbes is still writing uh, Commissioner Gordon's butt about, you know, you're a criminal, Gordon, somehow. I keep telling you this. So he says, I'm sending you to a therapist to talk about your issues. I'm sure you'll feel better about it. Batman goes back to the scene of the crime to look for more clues and runs into some old, old friends, Tweedledee and Tweedledum, who say that they found a little bat and they want to kill it. Just kill it dead. Batman says they're full of rage. So after a bit of a scuffle, um, they knock Batman through the wall, and he chases him down. It appears to be a bit of a sewer, but I'm not exactly sure. Back in like the streets of Gotham, Alfred is watching the senator, Senator Toomey, presumably to announce his bid for presidency, but uh, it's not that. He says he would like to announce his candidacy as he blows his brains out. Imagine that. Um, across Gotham, we see Commissioner Gordon talking to his shrink. And him saying that, you know, my, my, my lousy wife came back and my daughter is in a wheelchair and then she's not. And my son's in Arkham Asylum. My life sucks. Um, then we can see Batman in the Bat plane or Bat wing, whatever it's called these days. 
and tracking Tweedledee and Tweedledum to their boss, who turns out to be the Mad Hatter. Batman um, figures out that the Mad Hatter is using these radio waves to get into Gotham, Gotham citizens' minds and control them to kill themselves, I think. And while the battle is going on, Gordon and uh, a police chopper arrives and attempts to arrest them. Mad Hatter seems to have some sort of like harpoon gun. <laughs> I don't even know where that came from, but he has it. And uh, plants are fired at the copper uh, at the chopper. I mean, Batman Batman knocks him into the uh, building's window skylight. Uh, Mad Hatter falls in there, but apparently he's okay. I guess they don't, they don't check or say anything about it. Batman says this city may be horrible, but we don't let it beat us. And um, both he and Gordon give a look of you know respect. And uh, the day is saved. I think next the night of owls again. Batman the Dark Knight, number eight. Now let's start off with the elephant in the room. Who's Joe Harris? Why is Ed Bendis on this book? What happened to David Finch? Where's Paul Jenkins? Well, <laughs> as much as I'd love to say that the last story arc uh, that appeared in Batman the Dark Knight caused such a ruckus amongst fans that Paul Jenkins was kicked off the book along with David Finch, that is not the case. Um... Now, we know Batman the Dark Knight is selling extremely well because it's been in the top ten. Um, I, I, I don't recall what the sales numbers were for uh, April off the top of my head, but I know for a fact that uh, Batman the Dark Knight has been up there as far as the DC books. I have never understood mm-hmm. why, uh, other than David Finch's art is mm-hmm. good art. But the issue is that the story is crap. It's always been crap. Now this issue, on the other hand, was wasn't nearly as bad as the last. I don't know issues. about that. <laughs> I wouldn't say this was horrible. Uh, I think the dialogue was at least somewhat better than the last couple. Um, the interesting thing about this issue was the fact that the creators changed, and that we had no idea that they were going to change. All right. So when the solicitation for Batman: The Dark Knight came out. It stated that it was going to be written by Paul Jenkins and art by David Finch. Now, the story, the credits in the front of the book say Joe Harris did the words, didn't write it, but he did the words, and Ed Bennis was on art. Now, the other interesting thing is the actual solicitation for the story, and as, as well as the actual cover, are still the same. The solicitation for the original issue they're supposed to come out said a series of disturbing events captivates Gotham City as citizens turn on each other all across town but when toxicology reports turn up negative it's left to Batman to determine the source of the problem bringing him into an encounter with Tweedledum and Tweedledee at an entrance to the mysterious Wonderland with Jim Gordon occupied on a tragic high profile case and madness beginning to take root across the city can Batman find the source of it all before it's too late so yeah that does sound just like it so my guess on that is uh, DC and Paul Jenkins had a falling out, and because they had a falling out, there was this story that was written that DC paid for, but it was not completed, and they told him he was going to be off the book, and in turn, he didn't finish the script, so they had to have Joe Harris come in. Also, if you remember from the last issue, Joe Harris also had some writing credits on that issue as well. Probably because that issue wasn't done either. So that's my guess. But, like I was saying, I don't think this was that bad. Um, 
the thing that kind of ticks me off is again the same thing as if what happened in Birds of Prey. Uh, the last issue ended with us learning that White Rabbit can multiply herself or whatever. <laughs> she's a twin or she's part of the Wonder Twins. Who knows? <laughs> the thing is, we, we learned that at the end of the last issue, and then White Rabbit isn't really even in the book. So, again, another little thing hanging there, and I have a high, high, high probability, chance, belief that Greg Hurwitz will not be bringing back White Rabbit. So the whole point of the first seven issues with White Rabbit, complete waste of time. And this isn't the first series that DC's done this, and I'm sure it won't be the last. Um, I'm going to give this two and a half out of five batterings. Uh Well, I disagree with Justin. I think this book, this issue was Whoa! absolutely bad. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Write it down, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I'll start at the beginning because it's easy. Uh, let's see. The, the issue starts off with this scintillating dialogue. There's something about Gotham City that brings it out in you. The worst we're all capable of. We work extremes here in Gotham. Sociopaths, terrorists, rogues, and supervillains. Sometimes it numbs us to the smaller horrors, but it's important to remember what a good look in the mirror can reveal. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's just like the idea. I, I mean... I'm not even sure what, what, what Mad Hatter's plan was. Mad Hatter, at what point did he ever want to control Gotham City so they could kill each other? This again, this again felt like a Batman story where the writer was trying to write Grim and Gritty, and it came off as very over-the-top and weird and amateurish. I mean, the thing's called the madness. What? That's, that's, a, that's such a generic title. And I'm not, I'm not saying like, you know, I care so much about the title, but like, that's so generic. It kind of reflects the kind of effort I thought was going into this thing. The scenes were very, very fast-paced to the point where I was not sure what the significance was with them. Um, this, Forbes, this Forbes tool needs to go. I mean, all he does is point his fingers and says, you're in trouble, mister, and I'll make sure to it someday in some issue, maybe. I don't know. Like... All, he's he's a, he's a joke. He, all he does is to kind of stand there, pointing their fingers at him, at people, at, at Gordon and Batman for stuff they didn't do, which everyone knows they didn't do. And like he says, I have proof. I can't prove it, but I have proof somehow. I thought it was interesting to have the reappearance of Tweedledee and Tweedledum in this issue, especially considering that like the last time we saw them, this is interesting. You guys may remember this. Uh, Dustin may remember this during Deanie's run of Detective, where uh, Tweedledee and Tweedledum were seemingly in cahoots with the Mad Hatter, but it turned out that the Mad Hatter was, like, kidnapped by them because they wanted to start a Wonderland gang. And by the end, the Mad Hatter said, I always thought a Wonderland gang was a real stupid idea. Well, apparently not anymore in this new continuity. Uh, I, I just thought that was funny. It's not, it doesn't mean anything. Um, but I didn't like how they were written. They were just written like monsters. I mean, Tweedledee and Tweedledum, I'm not going to say I've read every appearance of them, but I don't remember them being, like, Solomon Grundy-esque, like, kill, kill, kill. And I know there were those, there were, the idea was they're supposed to be under... Those those sonar waves that we going to say. I was. Saying, I thought. It's, That's right. I thought it was implied that they were on the the Bane drug again, or if we just completely moved on from that storyline. I think we mind moved on. It's something to do with like the reason why everybody's killing okay. each other and stuff. Well, here's, okay. So why, if they're on the on the sonar wave mind control thing, why are they working for for Matt Hatter in the first place? I mean, it's one thing to control them, but it's another thing for them to act. Crazy, and they're handling equipment. Maybe that's me nitpicking. Maybe that's me. Maybe that is me saying that trying to find a problem where there isn't. I just thought that was a little weird. 
I didn't care for how Bennis uh, depicted the Mad Hatter. Uh, I've seen that, I've seen him drawn kind of cra- crazily before, and this is one of those times I didn't really care for it. I'm not sure what again. I'm not sure what Hatter was going for. Was he just trying to destroy Gotham? Was he trying to control it? Was he trying to threaten it? I don't. I mean, that's never revealed. He's just shown to be the bad guy. And again, we have another we have another villain falling down a long way, and like there's no reassurance that they're okay or alive. And there's no and there's there is you know they do not they did not get commented on. It's just kind of weird. I thought this issue was very lazy. <laughs> I thought this issue was very kind of like phoned in. It wasn't horrible. But I don't. I don't think it was very good. Two out of two out of five batterings. I'm kind of on a similar page. Um, yeah, I was very surprised upon opening this book to uh, to try and work out what was going on before I got to the credits page because obviously it's on the the front cover. You got David Finch, Joe Harris, and Richard Friend. I didn't remember Joe Harris, but then uh, then then I, I did remember him with the help of Donovan that he was the. Uh, did the dialogue for the last issue. David Finch essentially gets a whole front page credit for doing the front cover on <laughs> in this book, and Bennis is nowhere to be seen as if to trick people into buying it. <laughs> and I actually think that the front cover is the worst piece of art in the book. If you look at, I don't know, Batman, there seems to be something off about Batman's face on there. Um, I was actually surprised. I mean, I, I remember... We we reported a couple of episodes ago that Venice was going to be on Detective for an issue, and uh, I hadn't really seen any of his work. And looking through here, it's actually quite consistent, which is, uh, I think I prefer it to David Finch, who he can do some amazing work, but it's often very inconsistent. Um, I don't know for sure. Like I said, I haven't seen a lot of Bennis's work, but it seems like he was trying to work in a style similar to David Finch. Uh, it's quite line heavy, and a lot of, especially the the Mad Hatter, it's kind of resembles the the Mad Hatter from the front cover. I wonder if that's intentional, trying to imitate the style, or if it's just how Bennis draws. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how he does on detectives to see if it's still this style or if he tries to do a more Daniels Daniel style. The it's it's hard to take this book seriously in that it's it's kind of jumping around. We know that Paul Jenkins is off the book, that we assume he had a falling out of D C or something happened there. The fact that he does hasn't got any credit on this book, I think I mean, it doesn't even say that David Finch helped plot this issue, so I don't understand what's going on with the story. Um, I think it's probably was David Finch and Paul Jenkins plotting this, and then Joe Harris doing the dialogue, but I, I think this is kind of not going anywhere at the moment, and I think we're just kind of waiting for Greg Hurwitz to take over, and then hopefully the SEALs will get some direction. It, it, like I said, it wasn't a, a bad issue. It just seemed very just pointless, I think, because I mean, you can have one-off issues and stuff, and like you know, I don't mind. I like them a lot of the time, just because it's it's nice to just have a single story where you can just get into it and not have to worry about plot points, especially when you're reading like all of the Bat books, however many there are. It's half the DCU at the moment, but. um it, it, yeah, it was just—it was completely out of nowhere. It's almost similar to what we had in the last issue, just with the idea of roided-out villains and stuff. And 
that might just be the aesthetic of the book, but two two out of five batterings. You know, finding out that Dustin has all this information on me, I just never want to disagree with him again. (laughs) (laughs) You know, guys, I know I say this a lot, and I'm sorry about it, but I really need to know, what is the point of a story? I think that this is very important. I mean, for many comics, it's quite obvious by the end of the issue. But this one, like so many others, has me completely baffled as to why I should care. And I think that's a job as a writer is to reel somebody in and be like, this is why I'm doing this story, this is why you should care about it, and this is why it's good. Bam, bam, bam. But there are many things like this issue that that just is not clear and that does not happen. A one-and-done story, I mean... Well, it's not Finch, apparently, but, you know, the entire issue should have just been about Gordon because that's really, I think, what the writer wanted to do. I think that that is quite clear with these little intermittent scenes. Okay, Gordon has issues. Do we really need to see him go to a therapist? What a rotten plot point. I mean, you really want Gordon to be a strong character, and to see a weak Gordon is very, I don't know, kind of rubs me the wrong way. I can already see the doctor being evil and then somehow using her knowledge against him. Maybe she'll hypnotize him and he'll reveal all these little goodies like he knows Batman. He knows the identity of his daughter and and Bruce and all these people. Who knows? Who knows what will happen? But of course it is one and done, so maybe it won't. I don't like the Mad Hatter here. I like the one that uses rhymes from the actual Alice in Wonderland. Not, you know, this gremlin-looking character with a fishing gun large enough to kill Jaws. I mean, does he even explain his motives for all the mass killing? No. Is it just... Yeah, I know. Is it just to cleanse Gotham? Why? What is with the constant need to cleanse when the real problem is the one with the, uh, the bleach and the mop, the, the villains? I, they, they just never look in the mirror, I guess. I'm a little confused as to how Batman says his dampeners are protecting him from the mind-altering signal when earlier he is fully impacted by it. I mean, does he all of a sudden switch it on and then it's okay, it's working? I I don't know. My daughter in and out of a wheelchair before I can ever find the time or even find the time to worry about it all? At all? What? Let me try that again. My daughter in and out of a wheelchair before I can even find the time to worry about it at all. This is one of his dramatic lines, which, wow, that is really dramatic. But I guess that is how we've seen Batgirl, right? She, she was in a wheelchair and then she was out of a wheelchair by uh what are those things called all right a miracle um yeah so two out of five i just don't know it was very (laughs) strange it was a strange issue two out of five batarangs all right so that is going to give batman the dark knight number eight a total of two out of five batarangs let's move into our next issue nightwing yeah nightwing there's something you need to know about Batgirl. She's back in Gotham, and This ain't a way to treat a lady, little boy blue. Didn't Bat Daddy teach you? You gotta treat a girl to dinner before you rough her up. And, yeah, there's that, too. We'll be there soon. How did you... Oh, right. That family plan. I told you! Written by Kyle Higgins, art by Eddie Barrows. The issue starts off with uh, us going back in time to 1910... And we see a family and uh, a boy is telling a story about how in order to be somebody, you have to be a child of Gotham. 
But in order to be a ch- child of Gotham, you've got to be related to either Alan Wayne, Frederick Cobblepot, Edward Elliot, or Burton Crown. This is the elite of Gotham. Um, the boy talks about how his uh, father died um, when he was young, and it was only him and his mother, and he started juggling in order to get money from people who were passing by. As time progressed, he uh, began juggling more and more and more and getting very good at it. Um, then one day, he actually uh, somebody was getting their stuff stolen from him, and the boy threw the ball at the man, and in turn... A uh, certain person who ended up being um, who is the owner of Haley's Circus saw him and offered him a job. We then cut to present day where Dick Grayson as Nightwing is at the police evidence room looking at the Eskrima stick that uh, is supposedly the murder weapon that we saw in the previous issue. After a quick call from... Alfred from the Batwing, we find out that the Talons are attacking Gotham City, and after a number of uh, a number of people at the head of Gotham City, um, Alfred puts out this call to everybody within the Bat family. Nightwing responds and says, "Hopefully, he can get to uh, Mayor Hattie in time." We then cut to City Hall, where Mayor Hattie is talking with his. Deputy Mayor, as well as uh, Councilman, when the lights go out, and a Talon appears and slices the head off the Councilman. Nightwing appears just as uh, the Talon is about to slice Mayor Hattie in half, and they start fighting back and forth. Then we cut back to the flashback where this the owner of Haley's Circus is talking with uh, this boy's mother, talking and telling him that he can offer him a good life in the circus. He then joins the circus, becomes a pretty big star in the circus, and eventually returns back to Gotham City and becomes a child of Gotham because he is from Gotham and is very popular. He falls in love with uh, Amelia, who just so happens to be the daughter of, um, what's his face? Burton Crown. Turns out to be the daughter of Burton Crown, one of the founding fathers of Gotham City in that time frame. Uh, Meanwhile, back in present time, Dick is trying to save Mayor Hattie by telling them to escape while he battles off uh, the Talon. After they fight back and forth, um, what ends up happening is uh, Dick shoves in a scream of stick through the Talon's head, through the eye socket, after he stabs him through the heart with his very own sword. Um, at this point, the Talon falls over and Dick is bleeding. We then come back to the flashback where we find out that the the boy, who is now a man, um, is getting very close to this Amelia, and uh you find out that uh, he everything was stripped away from him and the ultimate betrayal was at hand. Uh, meanwhile, back in present day, Mayor Hattie and uh, the deputy mayor are talking or mentioned to uh, Nightwing about how he, they can't believe he killed him, to which Nightwing said, no, he's got regenerative powers. That's why he has the thing through his head. It keeps him from being able to regenerate. As this happens, <laughs> a bunch of knives pop out and 
stab Dick Grayson through the, the chest and the shoulder, and Dick Grayson is standing there bleeding with four knives stuck in him, and as it turns out, um, this Talon is here to kill Dick Grayson because he is none other than his great-great-grandpa, William Cobb. That is Nightwing. Yeah. All right, Nightwing number eight. This was a interesting issue. Um, it d- definitely kicked off, but unlike so many other issues this month, it actually picked up on things that were left hanging at the end of the last issues. We see Dick, res- you know, resolving—not resolving, but responding to um, the the murder that is pending on his name with the Escrima stick. We see him going and looking at the Escrima stick, thinking there must be something different about this one compared to one of his. Um, so with that being said, I, I like that Kyle Higgins brought that element back to the book, even though there is this crossover event that's happening. That's even happening a month earlier than the rest of the books. They, he still found a way to actually get it to play into what's been going on through his entire run on Nightwing. Um, that being said, the flashback sequence is really cool. It reminds me a lot of Gates of Gotham, which I know some of us mm-hmm. like, some of us don't like. I really liked it. Um, a lot, of course, because of the history, mm-hmm. but this, of course, has a lot of history, too. And we're getting this insight into Dick's great-great-great-grandfather that we wouldn't have known if this event wasn't happening. And that's that's interesting. Um, it is... To me, the main reason of why I find this interesting is I want to know why William Cobb considers this the ultimate betrayal. I want to know what happened. I can assume, based off of the information that we got from this issue, that Amelia, because she is uh, Crown's daughter, Crown doesn't approve of the fact of his daughter being with this, this guy from the circus. And because of that... Something happens, and maybe Crown is actually part of the Court of Owls, and has William Cobb taken away from the circus, and he becomes a Talon because he doesn't want his daughter to be with him anymore. That's my guess. Probably right. Usually I'm just saying. Overall, I thought the issue was great. I liked the art. I love the art in this flashback sequences, probably even more so than the present-day sequences, just because I liked the artistic style that, uh, that was taken for those flashback sequences. It reminds me a lot of Gates of Gotham, but then again, it's not Trevor McCarthy, so in my opinion, this was even more detailed than what we were seeing in in, uh, Gates of Gotham. So overall, I'm going to give this four and a half out of five batterings. The biggest surprise for me in this issue was that Eddie Barrows did the entire issue's art, (laughs) which uh, is always welcome. I love his art in this issue. And this issue was really good. This is the best issue of Nightwing since, I dare say, the first one. I yeah. think that <laughs> I still have very much wants <laughs> to tell you. Um, I think that like it's finally back on track. There's no, I mean, and it's not so much to do with the Nine of Owls stuff, although that's that's obviously the central mm-hmm. plot here. It feels like it's very, very focused. Um, the flashback sequences are not arbitrary. They're very, they're you know, they're very integral to the story. And I love how Barrows differentiated the art. His style's still the same, but the, this actually probably should go to the colorist who is. Uh, Rod Reese. Rod Reese's colors are great in that, like, when he does the flashback sequences, they're very muted. They're very kind of like I don't want to say dull, but kind of, kind of, um, they're kind of ah, what's the, what's the word? Pastel. 
And um, when you go to the modern sequences, like right in the beginning with Dick investigating like his extreme mistakes at the at the at the uh, at the police, um, you know, in Gotham City, it's you know there's a lot of dark, there's a lot of like bright reds. The 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 night vision he has when Alfred's contacting him, it's the, the color palette is completely different. That's a better way to do, to uh, describe art than just changes in styles. Um, I thought both artists, both artists, both their colors in the pencil succeeded in that. Uh, Barrows is excellent. As always, he's probably one of my favorite Nightwing artists of all time. Although he does suffer a bit from Gillian Marchisms, and that he has, ten- has a tendency to like, give his uh, characters that, like the thousand yard stare every now and then. I don't think I can't think of an, a single issue where he hasn't uh, given somebody that look where they, their entire like iris and people are completely visible. And like uh, the creepiest it gets is at like the last part of the flashback. Where Amelia is uh, in the crowd at the circus clapping, she almost looks like a doll. <laughs> Just really creepy. But be that as it may, um, I was a little surprised when like the guy got his head cut off. Although I, I kind of let that go. It's like you know, well you know, it's like uh, it's not. They, they could they could have done worse. With that I suppose it's not up close and personal like Batwoman. And uh, you know, I guess it's it's you know just kind of seriousness shows the owls are. And I love the fight between the owl and Dick. I love the line, uh, "Oh, you want to." sword fight with me? I've been trained by the best sword fighters on the planet. And Dick's like, good, so have I. And just slashes him. I thought that was awesome. I, I love the fight between him and the owl. And um, the ending was great, where he gets, you know, he gets shanked by all these knives and he's like, no. And he's leaning over bleeding while that that, uh, that um, owl is just standing over him. It's like, it's literally like, you know, what's going to happen to Dick now? So this is a very, very solid issue. This, this is comics done right. Four and a half out of five batterings. Uh, yeah, I really like the the art in this issue. Uh, I think it fits the tone a lot more in this issue than it, it has done when Nightwing's been a bit more light-hearted. I think Eddie Barris has been a bit too gritty for it, but I think he really suits the story. And, uh, yeah, I think, like Don was saying, the colorist does an excellent job as well, uh, especially in the the flashback sequences. I'm getting a bit bored with it all of the, the history elements and stuff, I, I think it's just because I get a bit annoyed when characters' origins are kind of changed or affected, or there's stuff like, oh yeah, everything's the same, but then there's this thing which you didn't know about, which is convenient for the story, which is good. And why does everyone have to be connected to everyone in sort of Snyder, it's almost Snyder's era of Batman, and just like... Nightwing and Batman, they all have these like famous ancestors who changed the city and affected it, and it's like, oh, it's carrying on the family line. That annoys me a bit, and it, I think it takes away from their their character and that, you know, their heroics and stuff, if they kind of come from this long line of heroic people. It kind of, I think, like I said, I think it takes away from that. I might be wrong, but isn't the at least the, the first talent the one from like the first talent that we saw. I have no idea. Yeah, the one that yeah, because he regenerates. Yeah, but and, he was also and... dead, and then they said, "Oh mm-hmm. no," because he's he's locked up in Bruce's right in the in the Batcave. I mean, I might be wrong; it might not be him, but I, I was I thought it was. No, I'm pretty sure the whole point was that the one who was facing Batman in Batman was the same person, William Cobb, and. This was the same exact one that also then got killed and kicked into the the lake or the sewers or whatever 
along with Batman that Alfred found and strapped down to the thing and they were doing tests on in the last issue. So, yeah, where does the him being strapped down turn into him not long, him no longer being strapped down? I guess that could have happened in the events of what happens in Batman number 8. I guess. But it's not ever actually explained. No, yeah, that, that, that was just a bit jarring. But no, it's, it's definitely, I think Don was saying how the story is more focused and not necessarily because of the the uh, Court of Owls, but I think that's what has given it its focus instead of, you know, Nightwing just travelling around the, with the circus. He's actually doing something which feels important. I always think it's best to kind of establish a character before you go back and start looking into delving into their past and stuff, which is, which is what is happening here. Um, because I'm still not exactly sure what type of character Dick Grayson is in this universe, just because of the kind of uh, inconsistent issues we've had with Nightwing. I think it's been... It hasn't been a very strong series so far. I think it's picking up now with this Court of Owls, but I think it is because of the Court of Owls that it's given it a kind of a drive. Um, I'm not sure that I buy or agree with... Nightwing just actually killing the Talon. I mean, even Bruce didn't go as far as killing him. Even if they do regenerate and stuff, he, it's still a person, surely. I mean, he stabs him through the eye, right well, through the back of the head. Um, sorry, what? I, 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 I don't mean to interrupt you. I, don't, I really don't mean to. But, like, the guy like, like the guy is basically a zombie. He was sort of, like, just, like, making sure that he didn't get up for a little bit. He didn't, he didn't like, take his life. Yeah, well, he, he was just says... Resurrect from that. I mean, yeah, yeah. You can't kill the undead, silly. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. I just, I, I, I want that soundbite saved. <laughs> Please, yeah, and do a beat mix underneath. <laughs> I just don't get the. Uh, I just think it was a bit brutal for Nightwing, and I don't know. Maybe it's because of the personal element. Maybe it's just because he is supposed to be undead and he, he doesn't apparently bleed it, he just it's antifreeze pouring out of his body but I don't know but uh, no definitely the best issue of the series so far so three and a half out of five batterings it's about the history I like the history <laughs> gotta bring that back um, you know this is probably one of the best Nightwing books that has come out so far I wholeheartedly agree with this statement that Don made, and I made it to him at one point as well. I love the blend between the historical narrative and the present. And I I also enjoyed um, Gates of Gotham, so this was a nice tie to that. It was nice to get to know one of the owls, um, almost becoming invested in that particular character, because up to now, they've just been sort of a thing. A soulless idea, but now we can see that they too had a life, and it was almost tragic to see what had happened there. And this one works so well because of the connection to the circus, which you know really fits with uh, Dick and Nightwing. It's got some heavy shipping. Gotta love the shipping. Uh, gotta love when the issue begins. This is a story about love, and of course, how funny is it that it's uh, indeed with another redhead? Yeah. Yeah, I know. I saw that. <laughs> <laughs> it was interesting to see Nightwing beginning to investigate the double murder with his Eskrima sticks and then suddenly be called away. And, of course, later that Eskrima is used. I assume it's a, like he just pulls it out of evidence and then uses it. 
I could be wrong, though. Maybe it's a different one. This issue, um, you know, it's slightly more gruesome, I think, than we've been accustomed to in Nightwing, because normally I'm, I'm, I'm ready for the macabre and Batwoman, but this one seemed like, ooh, this one's a little violent here. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm not sure if it, it's due to the story or if this is just the tendency that comics are having now to be slightly more violent. And it really reminds me of a movie, and I cannot for the life of me remember this, but I remember somebody jamming something through somebody's head or eye and saying, like, regenerate that or something. I feel maybe it's a Jason movie because he always comes back from the dead and he's able to somehow regenerate cells. I don't know how it all happens. Uh, but, yeah, is this more than a glorified zombie story? I, I, I mean, they are trying to make it more so, is, but who knows? But anyways, I mean, I don't want to detract from the greatness that was this issue. I thought it was, I thought it was wonderful. 4.5 out of 5 batterings. Over on the website, the Newsdigger gave the issue 3 out of 5 batterings. So it's going to give Nightwing number 8 a total of 4 out of 5 batterings. Let's move into our next book, Red Hood and the Outlaws, number eight. <laughs> I have never seen such a whimsical device. Hello, Starfire. Hello, tiny wooden replica of Starfire. Red Hood and the Outlaws, number eight. Written by Scott Lobdell with art by Kenneth Rocker for this issue. Forms. Uh, <laughs> the issue opens with a brief flashback to Jason just after he's left Dukra and the Untitled and he's trying to make it as his own hero, he wants to kill the Joker, face Batman but before he can do that he needs some money and resources, so it's essentially a story about him taking over the Hong Kong underworld gang after gang after crime family after crime family until he kills everyone but Susie Sue and her father well, apparently Susie Sue is after him, so he needs to travel to Gotham of all places. Convenient, I know. To uh, to confront her. When they're there, uh, Susie Sue is guarded by a bunch of uh, tough guys with guns. Jason goes off to fight her independently, while Roy and Corey are there taking out the henchmen, trying to save the children of the hospital, and generally working as a team. Jason confronts Susie, or rather she falls out of the sky onto him, mm. and uh, and they fight when, or they do fight, until Jason shoots her in the face, point-blank range. <laughs> <laughs> they then walk out, they then uh, casually stroll out of the hospital, leaving it in ruin after destroying an elevator, get onto Crux's spaceship, where they see Alfred's message calling all Bat family members. Jason Todd deliberates with himself whether or not he wants to help them. He has a flashback to meeting Tim Drake at a Lex Tower in New York after hearing Red Robin's name. And uh, after having this flashback and thinking about how he wasn't the best of brothers or friends to Tim Drake, that he wants to help, especially after he sees that one of the people he needs to save is Victor Freeze, which piques his interest. So next issue is... Redhead and the Outlaws are part of the superpowered sleepover we had to call Night of the Owls. Wah, wah, wah. Alright. Red Hood and the Outlaws, number eight. 
I don't have a whole lot to say about this issue. Um, the beginning where we get the explanation of who Susie Zoo is was completely... I was completely grateful for that explanation because at the end of the last issue, my biggest concern was, wait, Susie Sue? Who the heck is Susie <laughs> Sue? I mean, I'm not one to say that I know everything there is to know about the Batman universe, but ever since the New 52 happened, there's been some characters that have popped up where I really have to think to myself, wait, is this a character that we've already that we already know about, or is this a new character that we don't know about yet? And... <clears throat> what I've, what, what I'm glad about <laughs> is that when we get things like this, where it's a character that we don't necessarily know, they get we get an explanation. And Scott Lobdell has been pretty decent about doing this in all of his issues, uh, not just in Red Hood, but also in Teen Titans, which I know we don't cover here, but I've been reading Teen Titans as well. That being said, um, J- so Jason Todd shoots Susie Zoo in the head, eh? I mean, I, I'm kind of over the fact that, okay, well, clearly they have no problem killing people. Starfire sets a bunch of people into a pile of ashes. Uh, Roy Harper's shooting arrows into their heads. And Jason Todd has no problem shooting them, shooting Susie Zoo point blank in the face. Now, am I really that surprised? No, I'm not. I mean, at this point, we're eight issues in. We know that they are going to do whatever it takes. What's interesting, though, is that... Uh, that they're concerned about the children and the hostages in the hospital. So again, it's not as if they are villains. They are. They just feel like it's a necessity to go to the extreme to make sure things like this don't happen, which falls in line with everything that we've ever known about Jason Todd, and it makes perfect sense of why they f- why he feels like this. Am I surprised that Jason Todd is going to be uh, linked to Night of Owls? Mm, you know, I, at first it was kind of interesting because Roy Harper said it best. He's like, well, what do you owe them? What do you need to help them for? We're not going to go help them, right? And then all of a sudden we see this flashback of Jason and Tim, and then we understand there's a little bit more going on than everybody realizes, which I didn't see coming and I thought was pretty cool. The fact that, okay, so Jason Todd hates Dick Grayson. He, like, legitimately hates him with a passion. For some reason. But for, as for Tim Drake, he's got no problems with Tim Drake. As a matter of fact, he uses Tim Drake to get some information. And they trade information back and forth without Bruce or anybody else having to know about it. I think that's kind of cool because it's kind of like a respect that, you know, Jason doesn't like Dick, in my opinion, because Dick was the previous Robin. And Jason f- f- was constantly feeling like he was living in Dick's shadow. Completely understandable. But at the same point, when when Jason dies, Tim takes over for Jason as the new Robin. Why would Jason have anything against this new Robin who had nothing to do with Batman before you know he died? He doesn't. So I thought that was kind of cool. And I thought the little you know personal exchange about, oh, you've got waffles? They're not Alfred's and waffles, are they? Yeah, because they taste like crap. I thought that was... I thought there was good, you know, dialogue between the two of them. It's nice to see that Jason isn't all by himself within the Bat family, that he has ties, it's just not the ties that everyone would expect. Um, so with that, I thought this was great. I love the art, as usual. Um, I'm going to give this four out of five batterings. 
<laughs> I didn't like this issue. <laughs> um, I didn't read it until like yesterday, but when I read it, I didn't care for it. Uh, they're just kind of little things. I mean, the overall plot is it feels right for this kind of series, but this is another one of those series. I mean, I, this is one of those series I I didn't like out, out the gate, and like it kind of ebbs and flows. But now I'm kind of back into not liking it again. Um, I don't I don't want to I don't want to go go. T- go too mad on this because it really wasn't like you know, the worst thing since you know sliced bread or whatever it wasn't horrible but they're just kind of things that this annoyed me really really kept me from enjoying it much like the opening sequence where jason like is telling a story where he's like blackmailing all these uh gangs to give him money so he can fund his revenge spree uh and Corey's like and i thought i had a temper and then like roy's like i swear jason you have the best stories that was really irritating <laughs> Like, I, I, it's not so much these guys kill people, but like they revel in like a simple story. Like, yes, and they and they pull their guns on me, and then I killed them. And I wouldn't. That, to me, that that doesn't that doesn't, that doesn't earn a knee slapping laugh and say, "Wow, what an awesome story that was." I, I don't know. And that that felt that felt out of place. Um, I laughed. I laughed loudly when it said, "You know, that's why we're here in Gotham City," because I could just see. Next, the Court of Owls at the very end of the page. Like I, I had visions of it when I read In Gotham City. It was it was hilarious. Um, just little things. I mean, I don't know. Starfire still bothers me, uh, and it's not you know it's besides, it's besides her pasty you know boobed outfit. Ugh. Like like for, like like has anybody actually looked at that thing? But I'm not gonna go too long, too long about that. And like this on the on the flip side, you have this Susie Susie Zoo woman or whatever. Uh, I. I don't know. Like she's this big fat blob character, but then she has super strength. Is she just fat? Like the whole gag of her falling down the the like the elevator shaft and laying on him, it's like it's because she's fat. Isn't that funny? And like I'm not saying you should feel bad for anything like that, but the fact that they kind of they kind of played it up in the art, and I thought there's I don't know it it, it just feels I, I I'm not feeling it. I'm stop. I'm not feeling it. And um, I did think that the ending with Tim was interesting. Um, although, Starfire saying, do you know this boy, Jason? Like, and I'm not, I'm not going to go too much on this, but like, obviously that, 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 you know, dangerously contradicts her teaching Tim in the Titans pretty fast point. But the, thing, but, but the interesting thing about it is, is that speaking of which, last time I saw Tim and Jason Todd interact, I mean, besides Battle for the Cowl, obviously, uh, Jason shot didn't I think Jason shot him or stabbed him or whatever, and then before that he beat him up in the Titans Tower. And I'm just I'm just saying this to con- or to contrast what Dustin said about how their relationship is way 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 uh, more you know kind of loose and fantasy free here. Um, I find it interesting that Jason and Tim have sort of a easy relationship because it is a, so it's sort of sort of flipping the script on how he was with Dick, obviously. So I was thinking, okay, pre Flashpoint. Jason did hate Tim, basically because not only did, did Batman seemingly not avenge his death, but he replaced him almost rapidly. And I don't remember him explicitly hating Nightwing, but I know he didn't care for him. Now he hates Nightwing for reasons I don't think they've ever really explained, and he doesn't mind Tim as much. I do find that legitimately interesting. I think it's a bit contradictory towards the characters, but it's not something I want to complain about heavily. And now I'll just end by saying that, like this whole Starfire thing, like, oh, do you know this boy, D- J- Jason? Who's like, Mr. Freeze? Is he important? 
I understand that Starfire's gig is, you know, for her not to know stuff and basically everybody laughs at it. But the way it's being written is that, like, it's supposed to make it's supposed to elicit a response from the reader that she doesn't know anything, and that's kind of annoying. That they're basically using her ignorance of the DCU to like as as a as a gag. I, I don't really care for that. So I'll give this one out of five batterings. I didn't care for it. Can I ask something really quickly? Um, okay. Well, you said about you know this fat character is she super strong? Would you say that she? And this is not. I'm not trying to be like cute about this, but would you say that? Kingpin is similar to that because you always think he's fat, but he is strong. So, do you think there could be a similarity between those two characters? I don't there? think. I don't think it's completely different universe. I know, but it's. I'm just gonna throw that out. <laughs> well, she, well, well, her point is that, like, you know, this is the same idea. Like a strong character who just happens to look fat, and I don't think it is because, to me, there's a bit more visual. There's a bit more visual gags with uh, Susie Sue than there is with the Kingpin. The Kingpin kind of looks that big, but he's never really played up for jokes. Where I think Susie Sue is, and that, I, I kind of found that irritating. This is a very—it's a very easy trope to do. The fat person who kind of bumbles the way through walls and stuff. Thank you. The the one thing I do have to say about her being super fat though is they do state that she's six hundred. Goo. Pounds. And. Jason Todd lifts that chick over his head. Did he really? <laughs> yeah. Way I think go. only Batman could flips, do that. He, she like tries to tackle him, and then he flips her over his head. And I just thought to myself, yeah, you know, I, I could I could see, you know, maybe three, maybe 400 pounds. Oh, I see that now. Whatever. Is, is that fact, or is it kind of exaggerated, do you think? Well, maybe exaggerate. There's just something I yeah. saw, and I was just like, "Yeah, that I don't see happening." But whatever. Anyway. Okay. Well, Red Hood and the Outlaws—an issue that actually makes sense, which I was very happy about. I could follow it from start to finish, know exactly what was going on. We had reference, uh, yeah, references to past storylines, everything tying together. We learned who Susie Sue was, which was good. I uh, I also laughed at the whole let's get you to Gotham. I mean, I, I can genuinely see even if even if uh, they it wasn't going to Gotham, I can see like even if they were going to a hospital, I can see them just changing, the, tweaking the dialogue just a bit in just a couple of text boxes just to make it Gotham. There's n- it doesn't look like Gotham, and then you know there's none of the iconic buildings that I can see in the in the cityscape. But um yeah, the whole the whole thing about Gotham having the best gunshot wound hospital, I, I don't really understand how that's the case. I can understand why it might be, I mean, if a lot of people are getting shot in Gotham. But I don't understand why if someone gets shot, I'm pretty sure the whole idea is to get like the bullet out as soon as possible. You wouldn't worry about shipping them halfway across the country to a hospital where they can do it a bit more delicately. I mean, if it's a particularly bad bullet wound, then, yeah, you're going to want to get out as soon as possible. And if it's not, if it's one that you can leave for a few hours while you fly them in a helicopter, then I'm pretty sure that the hospital, the closest one, would be able to do it. So I think that was just, like, a complete trope just to get them there. I think the art was, yeah, very good, very consistent. The only thing is I've now starting to have a bit of an issue with 
Jason's mask. I haven't before. It's just because obviously it's like a, a plastic or it's a shell kind of mask, which you know for somehow changes with his facial expression, and that's kind of generally been fine because you know you've got to show some form of expression. But we've never seen Jason smile in it before, and we do, and it in this issue when he's talking to Tim, and it looks very weird, and. Uh, it's now got me questioning again how that works. Um, I, th- I think the in, the relationship between Tim and Jason was an interesting one. I'm looking forward to seeing more about that. I'm looking forward to seeing the team as a whole fight the Court of Owls. I mean, I'm pretty sure Starfire could handle it on her own, but you know, it's going to be interesting to see the Court of Owls. I think it was just it was you could see how it was tied in. Um, yeah, I, I, th- I actually enjoyed this issue. I thought it was... There's a, there's a few things which don't quite make sense, but not just from this issue, just from the series as a whole. So I enjoy, it definitely answered a lot of questions in here, and uh, I, en- I enjoyed the issue, so I'll also give it four out of five batterings. Waffles? Waffles? Do you people know who started the waffle trend? That was Brian Q. Miller on Stephanie Brown's Batgirl. Donovan? It's real! Exactly. Uh, Red Hood and the Outlaws. Boy! Yeah, I don't know. Random shipping in hostage situation. Because that's when I love to ship myself with somebody. Yeah. As long as I still breathe, my only thought will be breaking your neck and licking the blood and bile that oozes from your lifeless blood. People, I do not, not make this up. This is actual dialogue. Can you imagine that? No. And neither can I. This is just an awful, awful story. Yes, I like seeing the gap between Jason's death and returning as Red Hood fulfilled. That's great to, to get some in-between stuff. But couldn't it be done with a better villain? Was this the only way to get Jason back to Gotham? Did he have to be portrayed worse in that backflash? Oh. I did like the scene between Jason and Tim because, you know, it almost seemed real. Uh, you know, it also makes it seem, this is kind of weird, uh, it makes it seem as if this takes place before Teen Titans because he has that Cassie Sandsmark comment that he's giving him information, and that was basically issues one and two of Teen Titans. So I'm wondering where this book and, and Teen Titans fall in the timeline. It seems like this may be a little before, which is interesting. I still like, you know, that this, or I still feel like this team is forced upon us, uh, especially with Jason saying, you know, I trust them because they are the best. Really? Roy Harper? He's the best? I mean, his, his, what, his AA sponsor, it's not really AA, but his sponsor is Killer Croc, and he's the best? I don't know about that. I give the, yeah, I, I thought it was bad. I don't, I guess I couldn't come up with any positives. Oh, the, po- yeah, this Jason and Tim. See, I did come up with the positive people. Two out of five batterings. All right, and over on the website, the news digger gave the issue four out of five batterings, and David from the normal cast gave the issue three out of five batterings. So that is going to give Red Hood and the Outlaws number eight a total of three out of five batterings. Let's move into our next book, Catwoman number eight. So, my fine Finkish friends, you have heard my astounding proposal. What do you say? What do you say? One thing is certain, our strike cannot be postponed. We are at the mercy of the Gotham River tide. 
Riddler's right for once. It's now or never if we're to get through the channel. Well, make up your minds. The Batman will never come here now, but the police will any instant. So to the Penguin's princely plan. Is it yes or no? I say it's crazy. But I say let's try it. We have to do something to get Batman out of the way. Catwoman number eight. I'm good at getting people to do what I need them to do. Writer, Judd Winnick, pencils, Adriana Mello, inks, Mariah Benes, and Julio Ferreira. The issue begins with a half-naked Catwoman and Spark exiting a pool. They crept in from a grate at the bottom of the pool in order to avoid tripping alarms. Catwoman expresses her lack of, of full trust of Spark as he disables the security systems in the house. Catwoman and Spark have been stealing together for a little while, and things have been good so far. The current heist is in a house filled with a range of ancient weapons. Unfortunately for them, a set of daggers, the Daggers of Aves, is missing the fifth and final dagger. As they realize this, as they realize this a group of men burst in. Spark and Catwoman make their exit, drive away. Catwoman secretly admits that she is enjoying stealing with Spark, and Catwoman tells Spark she believes she knows where the fifth dagger is. Later, Serena is talking to Gwen, telling her that Penguin must have the fifth dagger, based on some intel that she received. Gwen voices her concerns about Spark, saying she doesn't trust him, and Selina has enough problems to deal with. Selina tries to comfort her by explaining that she, Gwen, is still her favorite, and that Spark has been really helpful thus far. Later, on a roof overlooking Hooker Stroll, Catwoman and Spark are doing recon on Penguin. Catwoman explains that twice a month, he eats at Henning C.S. Suelo and also avoids particular parts of town. Spark applauds Catwoman's partner, and Catwoman denies having one, still saying that she doesn't trust Spark fully. As they continue to talk, they notice a particular prostitute is showing signs that she does not want to get inside a van. Lo and behold, the creeper from the previous issue, the one that seems to like kidnapping prostitutes with his van, has returned. Catwoman leaps down and tries to save the girl, quickly discovering that the creeper is packing some heat and is not a run-of-the-mill perv. Spark comes to help, and the creeper decides to leave before it is too late, throwing a grenade in with the unconscious prostitute. Spark saves her, and they make it out alive. Catwoman and Spark then start talking to other prostitutes and learn that this is not the first kidnapping with no bodies being found. They are being hunted, and Catwoman doesn't like it. Elsewhere, the Court of Owls are meeting and reviewing the impediments found throughout Gotham, which stand in their way. Each will meet their end at the Talons, and Cobblepot is on the list. Next, Cops, Owls, and One Penguin, oh my. Alright, Catwoman number eight. This was interesting because, again, uh, we have an issue that actually does blend perfectly into what's currently happening in the uh, series and leading up to what's going on. They bring Penguin into the storyline by having him have this dagger that Catwoman needs to steal. But at the same time, she's also the one that will be protecting Penguin during the Night of Owls crossover, which we know will be happening next month. So it's just another example of a writer blending the actual events of what's happening in the series right into the crossover to make it work as a standalone issue, but yet still tying into the entire overarching cross arc or crossover. That being said, um, I think the idea of Spark is interesting, but I have a feeling it's going to turn out bad just because nothing good has really happened to Catwoman ever since this series started. 
Um, yeah, she's got Gwen, and yeah, okay, she's got Spark, but, you know, good things are always meant to come to an end for Catwoman, at least as that that's what it seems in this series. Um, I thought the art was good. Um, yeah, I don't know that we necessarily need to have Catwoman stripped down to a bikini when she's coming out of the pool, only to then put her suit that also had to be in the water with her the entire time back on. That just, to me, doesn't make a lot of sense. What does she really gain from wearing a string bikini when she's tactically trying to break into a mansion? Yeah, I don't know. Um, overall, I'm going to say three out of five batterings. Yeah, that opening that opening page with her and, and Spark coming out of the pool. Uh, I think it's just an art thing. It just didn't. It didn't look. I don't know. Was it Selena looking at the rear like? Ha, 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 ha. Uh, it looked weird to me. It looked kind of dumb. <laughs> um. um I'm tired of the Penguin. I don't know much y'all, but I really am. Mm-hmm. I mean, granted, he's not one of my favorite Bat Rogues in the first place, but he's, like, in every title now. And, like, it's the same thing. He's he's fronting this this gang about smuggling this stuff and smoking a cigar. It's the Penguin. I don't know. It's like I'm tired of him. That's just, that's just me. I don't know if I else would be. Um, Selena's still annoying. Uh, Adriana Mello, I don't think she's a bad artist, but I don't think she's actually a really good artist either. There's been worse, worse artists, but I mean, come after Gillian March, but I think he really is a good artist. I don't think that she's doing. I don't, I don't know. I, I kind of wish that she was on a maybe a lesser profile book because I think this isn't really up to snuff, in my personal opinion. Um, the issue itself was okay, I suppose, <laughs> for for a character I don't really like right now. But um, I mean, it wasn't. It was. It was sort of inoffensive. Um, the Night of Owls thing seems a little more, a little more extraneously connected than the other titles. I will say that. I will give this two and a half out of five better ranks. Uh, yeah, I actually really like the artist. I think I, I said last week how I think she does a, a better job of making Catwoman look like she's having fun when she's being stupid and stealing stealing stuff, you know, because she's Catwoman, she's kooky, and she's funny. Um, I, I find it interesting that this is the first book where we actually see the Court of Owls kind of meeting and saying that this is what we're going to do, these are the people we're going to take out assuming that they're the same list that we get to see in Batman, but we don't actually see the origin of that list. If it's the same list, then that's pretty interesting and a bit odd that it's in Catwoman of all books, but I guess Judd Winnick is trying to take a, a large role in the book, writing three of the tie-ins. Um, it wasn't a, a bad issue at all. It's, it's pretty enjoyable. I mean, like I say, it, kind of, it blends quite well, I, I think, a bit more smoothly than... Red Hood did, although it's a bit odd why she needs to steal these five daggers, unless I I missed it. I don't know why she's so attached to just them. I guess the reason she took her jumpsuit off when she came through the the grate is because otherwise it would have just completely swelled up with water and she would have been walking around looking like Susie Sue, but I don't don't quite understand why uh, Shox... Is that that her name? Shox? Oh, Spark. Spark, yeah. I don't quite understand why Sparks, Spark felt it was safe enough, you know, after they just got out of a, a pool, dripping wet, probably dragging water everywhere to use his electricity power. I don't think that would be very healthy for Selina Kyle, but a pretty interesting issue. I'll give it two and a half out of five batterings. Uh, unlike Don, I guess I have stronger feelings about the artist. Um, I was actually pretty sad to see her name uh, <laughs> right away. <laughs> Because she just left a bad taste in my mouth f- 
from when she was on Birds of Prey Volume 3, if you remember her. And it was around the time of the Death of Oracle arc, if not the Death that of Oracle was, arc. That was horrible. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Penguin just looks like Lemony Snicket. And Selena, with her tongue out, is really unattractive rather than obviously being a enticing which is i guess what it's supposed to be so besides the the heavy sexual innuendo and prostitutes galore what else is in this book that's what i ask you listeners selena and spark have been teaming up you know a great amount it seems like she's still being safe but really the smart one i think of the bunch and in this book really seems to be gwen she's at least keeping score of all the problems selena's had and i too believe that there is probably something more with spark and i'm surprised that selena is working with him she seems more of a solo character um and, and i think that's that would have been the best way to build her up but you know uh, how convenient is it that the recon on Penguin actually interacts with the creeper that seems to be killing off prostitutes? It seems like just another book is deciding to throw as much ingredients into the pie than is needed. And then, of course, next issue, we're going to have Penguin, Owls, Spark, maybe this Detective Alvarez. We didn't see him this time. And the evil John. So that's five ingredients. Unless we'll just have the owls and penguin but i don't know why can't we just focus on a few crucial storylines and first and foremost beginning with selena and making her a good character 2.5 out of 5 batterings all right so overall catwoman number eight gets a total of two and a half out of five batterings let's move into our last issue batman number eight as i ride on my bike at the end of dark night there's a few plot points that just don't feel right like why the hell did i agree to take the rap Harvey Dent killed those people. Who gives a crap? And the Joker pulls crimes in such an orderly manner. He must write it down in an evil day planner. His henchmen are psycho and expendable, yet somehow completely dependable. And why is Morgan Freeman all pissed at me? He seemed to resign kind of randomly. It's okay to build me an armor tank car, but oh, tapping phones, that's going too far. Written by Scott Snyder, art by Greg Capullo. The, art, the issue starts off with... Alfred and uh, Batman thinking are talking and uh, some lights pop on and we see that Bruce Wayne is standing in a room looking at a model of Gotham City. And uh, he covers his eyes and explains to Alfred that the, eye, the light is still hurting his eyes. Alfred says that the best way to help him heal his eyes because of the issues that he is suffering from uh, being stuck below ground with the... It, the owls is to actually use the the lasers as a uh, healing method. Meanwhile, they start talking back and forth about how um, you know how could how could Bruce have been so stupid to not realize what's been going on all along. Uh, meanwhile, they start hearing the thump thumps and they realize that someone is trying to break into Wayne Manor. Um, as they do this, uh, we find out Alfred or Bruce tells Alfred to get to the back cave and that Bruce has an earpiece and lens um, that Alfred will be able to communicate with him with, or communicate to him with. Uh, then we find out that the Thump Thumps is actually the Talons. They are coming in full force to take down Bruce Wayne. Um, Bruce is fighting back the Talons numerous times. The Talons are making comments about how they have great training, but uh, Bruce responds that, yeah, but your training went out of style 200 years ago. Uh, we then have Alfred trying to find out exactly how many talons are breaking into Wayne Manor, uh, but it is unknown because there's just so many of them. 
Uh, Bruce ends up making it to the roof of Wayne Manor and fighting off a couple of more before escaping down the chimney, uh, which is a slide down to the actual Batcave. Uh, the, a Talon is actually in the Batcave and tells Bruce, well, well, it looks like you have a secret, don't you? <laughs> uh, but he's standing right in front of the giant penny to which falls over and we find out that Alfred pushed it on top of him. <laughs> um, as they're standing there, um, Batman gets a small device out of the arm um, of the Talon that got crushed by the penny and all the talons are slowly get coming downstairs to the actual um, Batcave flying through the caverns. We then see a talon go up to William Cobb and cut the lines that's uh, keeping him, uh, I guess, attached to the drawer, uh, attached to the, t- the, the bench that he's being attached to. And then uh, Alfred and Bruce retreat to the armory where they lock themselves in. Bruce instructs Alfred to lower the temperature of the cave to sub-zero temperatures, and uh, Alfred does that and says, but aren't you worried about yourself? You're not going to be able to withstand those temperatures. To which Bruce says, well, I've got something that I'm sure I've got something here, and uh, the doors burst open, and we see that he's in a what appears to be a robotic bat suit <laughs> with flames and lasers. Uh, then we cut to the backup story in the back, which actually just immediately picks up with right where we left, with a different style, with a different artist, uh, Raphael Albuquerque, and a uh, different writer, which is James Tinian, along with Scott Snyder. We pick up right where they left off, where Bruce in this Batman robot suit uh, is taking on the talons, and Alfred is actually instructed by Batman to put out the call, and we actually see... Alfred putting out the call to the Bat family about the various people in Gotham City that uh, are are under attack and he needs the um, Bat family to, to help. As he's doing this, we also see that there's Talon, there's Talons already all across the country, all across the city, taking out some of these people on the list. And uh, at this point, uh, that's basically where the Night of Owls begins. All right, Batman number eight. This was a very good issue. Um, there wasn't a lot that happened. I mean, Wayne Manor's being overrun by the Talons. Bruce fights them off. It was cool to see some of like the hidden things about how the chimney can easily be um, a shoot down to the Batcave just by him hitting a specific switch, and then it locks so that the Talons can't get in. I thought it was interesting how somehow a Talon managed to get inside of the Batcave before... Um, you know, they didn't fly through the caverns. We don't know how that first talent got in there, unless, of course, there was some kind of tracking device inside of the uh, of William Cobb. Now, one thing that I do want to bring up, just because I I asked about this, I want to say one or two episodes or well, one or two issues that we're reviewing Batman ago about how we haven't seen Lincoln March pop up for a while. If you look at the list at the very and during the backup, the list of all the people that are that are being hunted by the Talons, Lincoln Marge's name is actually on that list, which begs the question of, well, doesn't that automatically eliminate Lincoln Marge from being part of the Court of Owls or one of the Talons if, in fact, his name is on the list of people who needs to be killed? 
So that that well, my mind at least debunks that that possibility. Um, the art was great. I thought the art in not only the the main story by Greg Capullo, but also the backup story by Raphael Albuquerque was great. I thought the uh, the backup story worked perfectly because it was just kind of like a continuation of what was already happening in the main story, but it really had a different purpose. It wasn't uh, Bruce fighting off the Talons. It wasn't uh, you know Bruce and Alfred trying to you know take care of Wayne Manor. It was Alfred needed to get that message out to the Bat family, regardless of what was going on around him. And uh, I thought that that was really good. Um, so overall, I'm going to give this four out of five Batarangs. Oh, well, I love this issue. <laughs> this was really fun. And it's a complete gear shift from uh, the stuff that Scott Snyder... I'm usually familiar with with Scott Snyder's Batman, because this was a straight-up action issue. Um, I know Stella and Joe have been kind of, like, kind of waning with the whole Core of Owls thing. Mm-hmm. Which makes me interested in how they're going to consider this issue because I think, although obviously this is this is driving most of the stories in the Batman uh, cast of titles, I think this one in particular was just it was a lot more accessible. Um, there was there was a lot of quips <laughs> by Bruce, which I thought kind of worked. They were kind of corny, you know. They weren't like I don't know. I don't know it, it was kind of balanced with with a good set of tension, and I just like how he wrote the siege on on Wayne Manor because for whatever reason. Whenever somebody knows Batman's identity, it's very rarely a surprise, or it's very rarely done uh, with any sort of, like, I don't know, intensity. But, like, when Scott Snyder does it, and this is honestly something I, I think is a benefit to his writing, he makes it feel like it matters. Like, I remember I was, I was shocked when he had James Jr. realize that Dick Grayson was Batman uh, at the end of his uh, run of Detective last year. And this one, I like that the, the, the Owls didn't automatically know he was Batman. Until, like, one, that one owl followed... I thought this was funny. He followed Alfred down the bat poles, if you notice. Alfred falls down one of the bat poles from the 60s show, and the owl <laughs> follows him down there. And um, when Bruce, Bruce slides down the chimney into like, into, like, the cave, I love that whole, well, well, someone's got a secret. Like, what, that, I thought was... I thought it was cool. It, it, you know, it made it matter. It made it feel like these owls, as dangerous as they are, they don't know everything, but now they do. And, like, with this knowledge, what they can do, what can they do? They're, it's a little bit more unexpected. I loved the whole... I, I just like the whole idea of Alfred and Batman, you know, going... You see a lot of, like, what they have in Wayne Manor in the Batcave, like the whole armaments and safe, safe uh, panic rooms and stuff. And I like him saying, well, I'm sure I have something warm in here. And he comes out in this big Batman robot <laughs> saying, get out of my house. I, I don't know. I, I, I just really like that. I, I find it a lot of fun. The backup, like Dustin said, was, you know, it, it goes right into the battle and it kind of sets up the whole Night of Owls storyline with the other uh, Bat family members, which I thought was nice. I thought that was nice that they did that. I liked seeing the Robins first and then usually Batgirl and then the Birds of Prey. We don't see Batwing for one reason or another, but whatever. And um, I thought this was another great issue by Scott Snyder. A very different issue than he usually does, but it was a very enjoyable issue all the same. Five out of five Batarangs. Yeah, I enjoyed this issue a lot more. I'm, if you remember last issue, I was kind of picking apart. There were lots of things which bothered me about it, but now this issue I thoroughly enjoyed. It was uh, very exciting, and the, I think it was paced really well. You know, it, it kept it tense all the way through. Just you know, the the fight because often fight scenes. And uh, books where it's it's almost a fight for a whole book, they can they can start to drag on a bit or get a bit repetitive. But no, this was consistently strong all the way through. Um, 
I'm not sure how I feel about the, the backup, just in terms of normally, if you're having a backup, I like it to be connected, but not as directly. But I like the fact that you were seeing it from Alfred's perspective instead of Batman's and making the call, so I thought that worked well. I thought the, uh, the few, quite a few funny moments in the book as well, particularly Alfred toppling the coin on top of the the talon. I thought that was one of the, the strong points of the book. Um, and just seeing the the effects of what happened to Bruce still playing out in this book, I think is really effective, having him still sensitive to strong lights and things like that. No, yeah, I, I, th- I think the uh, this book really kind of shows the threat of the talons, you know, just how strong they are and uh, how effective they are. So... It's actually got me really excited for the the whole crossover event. I'm looking forward to reading all of these books and seeing how it plays out. So uh, four and a half out of five batterings. I really enjoyed this. Yeah, I've been disappointed with the Batman title, especially when I was really expecting great quality, and it just seemed like this entire lead-up to Court of Owls just kept going on and on. And finally we're here, and it certainly did pay off. I think it took a little too long but here we are really a haunting title page i think with bruce in the dark looking over the model of the city and and i really like this side by side of bruce and alfred going to work later on it's i think it's tragic to see bruce in this state you know he's broken hearted at the thought that gotham never was his city he never had control over it even all the the sweat and the blood he put into it to really help it and he never completely understood it you know, I know the book is called Batman, but it's great to once in a while see Bruce Wayne, Bruce Wayne kick butt and act smart. And the same can certainly be said of Alfred. I loved him, yeah, just like Joe said, pushing the penny over and saying, you're a lucky penny, sir. Uh, you're a lucky <laughs> penny, sir. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, the action sequences were all wonderfully choreographed. The short backup also showed us the actual events when Alfred was putting out the call, and I like this. Um, I remember I talked to Dustin before last TBU, and he had read Batman Last, whereas you should have read it first and then Nightwing second. And this time I pulled a Dustin, and I read Nightwing first and then Batman Last. And so all the while I was wondering, what is this bang, bang about? You know, I assumed someone was trying to break in, but I thought, oh, no, is someone going to get Alfred they're trying to break into the cave so it was great to see how that was revealed and I almost liked reading it last because all the while you know it's really suspenseful like what is going on what is going on with this big bang this bang bang but it seems like the story finally progressed so much in this issue and I really liked seeing it move along and it deserves the 4.5 out of 5 batterings alright and over on the website uh, the news digger gave the issue 4 out of 5 batterings and David from the normal cast gave it 5 out of 5 batterings, so it is going to give Batman number 8 a total of 4.5 out of 5 batterings. That is all of our comic book reviews. Let's throw over to John with Bat Books for Beginners.
Hello, and welcome to another episode of Back Books for Beginners. I'm your host, John, and this week we are reviewing Nightwing, The Ties That Bind. After the success of Nightwing, Alfred's return, DC commissioned a mini-series for Nightwing, and the result was Nightwing, The Ties That Bind. This was written by Dennis O'Neill, who famously stripped Wonder Woman of her powers and made Speedy a heroin addict. He is, however, perhaps best known for turning Batman around from the camp 60s period, creating such greats as Ra's al Ghul and Talia al Ghul, as well as Azrael. And he was head of various Batman titles until 2000, during which he played a role in the killing off of Jason Todd. The artist by Greg Land, who provided art for the main Nightwing series from 2000 to 2001, and is currently working for Marvel on two of the X-Men series. Another time, perhaps. It's good to see you again. Robin? I haven't used that name in a long time. Call me Nightwing. We open with Nightwing taking out a group of thugs who have kidnapped a woman called Miggy. Batman has been watching Dick fighting and they go and have a chat about Dick being Robin and his progression to Nightwing. It ends with him deciding to give up being Nightwing forever. The next day Alfred comes around and gives Dick some papers relating to his family including a threat towards his family from a Pickles the Clown, who, whilst in Cravia, joined the circus for the shows in that country. We then cut to Prince Balsic, who hires an American assassin to kill Grayson, claiming that he was a loose end they failed to tie up. Dick goes on a date with Miggy when he is approached by the assassin trying to kill him. However, fortunately for Dick, he gets distracted by Miggy, who offers to clean his apartment. Dick declines, but offers to walk her home, leaving the assassin disappointed. He returns to the apartment where the assassin is waiting. They fight, which ends with the assassin jumping out of the window onto a motorbike and riding off. Dick then goes to the Batcave, where he is given information by Oracle about Cravia. He is also given a new suit by Howard. Nightwing then parachutes into Cravia near the Prince's Palace, who is in the process of killing those who are the wrong creed and colour. However, Dick is spotted by some of the soldiers who begin shooting at him. This forces Nightwing to release his harness and he falls into a wood. Dick has to fight his way out of the wood, and as he is doing so, he gets a panicked call from Miggy, who tells him that she's in trouble. Nightwing decides to carry on with the mission rather than return. He rescues two people, one of whom promises to take Dick to the palace. However, Dick is betrayed by the man who knocks him out and takes him to Prince Balsic. Dick is then covered in honey and lowered into a pit with rats. Inside, he meets a man who turns out to be Balsic's father. Dick asks him about what happened at Haley's Circus. The man explains that they decided to replace the Prince of Cravia, as he was a tyrant, with his own son who they'd formed to look like the prince. The father decided to pretend to be a clown called Pickles, who then, in a deserted tent, murdered the prince. However, there were two witnesses, Dick's parents. 
Sadly, however, his son eventually rebelled and became the monster he had tried to avoid, and he decided that the Gratians should be kept quiet. Dick nearly cuts the rope which he was using to bring the man up out of the pit, but decides against it and they escape, with the father being shot in the process. Dick returns home to several panicked messages from Miggy, who is being attacked by her father, but before he can get to her, he is attacked by the assassin. However, this time Dick wins and dashes to save Miggy. She phones again, telling him that her father has a gun. Dick reassures her that he is not far away, and as he pulls up, he hears a gunshot. He bursts in to find Miggy has shot her father. We then cut to Nightwing, who is visiting Prince Balsic's father in hospital. Prince Balsic's father then tells him that before they could reach his parents, they read of their deaths in the paper, and that he does not think they would have killed them anyway. It ends with Dick taking back the Nightwing mantle. So, in review, I really, really enjoyed this series. Uh, I thought it was nice that after taking the mantle, Dick, never wanted to be like Bruce and with him becoming more like Batman while in the suit that made him reevaluate the job that he was doing and where he was progressing as a person which is something that Dick's always done and always sworn that he'd never turn into I also like the fact that we see more intrigue about the death of Dick's parents and for him it will never be as cut and dry as he wants it to be and it still stirs up emotions, although why he had to go to Cravia for it is, I felt, a little bit of a silly point, and it really didn't kind of work. It, I just felt that this could have all been done in Gotham, and it would have tied in a lot better, rather than flying all the way to a different country to investigate the problem. The art was very good, despite the 90s Nightwing style, which I have already stated I hate. I thought that the characters were drawn really, really well. There were a few inconsistencies. At one stage it looks like George Michael is driving a taxi, which I had to double take at. And the soldiers change their colour as well halfway through. Um, they start off blue and orange and end up blue and white, which was a bit weird, but it's a minor niggle. Having read this and Chuck Dixon's run on Nightwing, it's a shame that... O'Neill didn't stay on the comic, as I felt that he really understood what makes Nightwing tick, and throughout I felt like I was under his skin the whole way through. Overall, I'd give this 4 out of 5 Batarangs. So, coming up next, we have Underworld Unleashed, which I'm looking forward to, because I have never read it before, so it's uh, new and exciting. There is also a brand new list of what I'll be covering on Back Books for Beginners. It's now up on the forum, so log on there, have a look, purchase the books, read along. Also, if you want to leave any opinions, any questions, anything like that, then the forum's the place to do it. And now, I'm going to hand you back over to Dustin the Guy. Thanks for listening.
right, so that was Bet Books for Beginners. Uh, let's jump right into our DCU spotlight, and first we'll start hey. with it, I don't think it's going to be a surprise here. <clears throat> I'm going to go with a, a, a gentleman that I very much respect and one of the first friends that Batgirl to Oracle made. I'm going to go with Smallville Season 11, number one, uh, written by Brian Q. Miller and Art uh a team up that he he had this artist on Batgirl, so it was great to see him again, Perry Perez. And I won't say a lot about it. I mean, if you're a fan of Smallville and you lasted all ten seasons, I think this is going to be great for anyone. Uh, Great writing. I mean, it's not a shock. And now you're seeing Clark Kent actually have the suit on and kind of go to work. And, of course, you have all of the minor characters involved still. You still see Chloe and Oliver and um, Lois and everything. So I, it's just fun, and I love being able to see BQM's uh, name on the title page again. So that's my rec. I will recommend the unfortunate final issue of Static Shock. Um, I believe it came out last month. But, uh, if not this month, um, of April. <laughs> but it is assessed, the, the series is canceled because of poor quality <laughs> um, and also internal politics. But uh, this last issue actually was very coherent and very solid. Um, if you don't know much about Static and his character, it's kind of like a one-and-done thing that kind of gets you into him and maybe read his old series, if you can find it. It kind of like It's basically a recap of his, his life as Static, as Roger Hawkins, Growing up in Dakota, learning his powers, his supporting cast, the events in his life, moving to uh, New York, and the stuff that happened in New York, which you should probably avoid. But <laughs> honestly, it is a very solid. I mean, for what it is, it's a good enough to the book. It's a good enough to the character. And even if for a newbie, it really is a good jumping off point to the character of Statics. So I would recommend that for that reason. I will be recommending Frankenstein, Agent of Shade. It's Another Jeff Lemire book, if you've been enjoying Animal Man. And it's kind of horror, sci-fi type book. Uh, it's been quoted as being the kind of the hellboy of the DC Universe, but it, it's, it's definitely different to it. It's, it's got its own uh, tone and its own themes. Um, I- issue 8 obviously just came out, and um, I don't want to give too much, although it's on the front cover, so you basically see the... Uh, the son of Frankenstein, which sounds cliche, I know, but that's the kind of the way it's written. And uh, written by Jeff Lamar, art by Alberto Ponticelli. I'd never heard of him before the series. He's quite a rough, fairly inconsistent artist, but it, it's so um, energetic and particularly the, the more sci-fi stuff. It's it really works well for the book, and uh, I would really recommend the series. It's unfortunately being or Jeff Lamar is leaving the book to write. Uh, Justice, Justice League Dark uh, starting from issue number 9 so I'm not sure when the new writer for this series comes on but definitely pick it up and uh, hopefully it'll be good after the, the change in creators Alright and I will be suggesting this month uh, Teen Titans number 8 um, Teen Titans along with Legion Lost along with uh, the Teen Titans Annual and uh, one of the new uh, the second wave New 52 series uh, is kicking off a actual uh, crossover just like Night of Owls, but it's called The Culling. Um, I'm not going to go into a lot of details because for those of you who aren't reading Teen Titans, you'll have no idea what anything is that's going on. The reason I'm suggesting this is because not only is Tim Drake 
Red Robin in the series, but also he's the team's leader. He's actually the the character who brought these uh, teenagers together to be the Teen Titans. For those of you who don't know anything about the new Teen Titans series, this is, in fact, according to DC, the first time there ever has been any teen uh, team, uh, a team of teens uh, in the DC universe, which means uh, Dick Grayson as part of the Teen Titans that never existed, things like that. So, I mean, this is a whole different take, but it's also starting from the beginning of them meeting and working together for the first time. If you read Red Hood and the Outlaws, you also saw kind of an inclination of that because Red Hood gives Tim Drake information about uh, Cassie Sandsmark, which is, uh, as we know, Wonder Girl, who is in Teen Titans. But it's almost as if the events that they showed in Red Hood took place before Teen Titans number one, way back mm-hmm. last September, which was interesting because I'm actually reading Teen Titans. The... The other thing is, uh, so Teen Titans number 8 was kind of like the prelude into this crossover that's happening called The Culling. Uh, Teen Titans Annual number 1 is the next issue. There's Legion Lost, and there is, um, like I said, the other Teen Titans issue. But also The Ravagers is kind of spinning into um, the Teen Titans books as well as well as, um, well, Superboy has been part of the Teen Titans stories for quite some time, too. So that's my suggestion. Check out Teen Titans. All right, so that is everything we we have for this episode. As far as what we'll be covering next time on the podcast, we will be covering Detective Comics number 9, Batwing number 9, Batgirl number 9, Batman number 9, and Batman and Robin number 9. Um, that is all of the books. Batman actually moves up to a week two book starting in May, uh, which means uh, one less book to cover towards the back half of the month. Also keep in mind that there are five Wednesdays in the month of May, which means there will be one extra week at the end of the month that you will not be getting our podcast. Uh, This only happens twice a year, and I think this is actually the second time, so... Um, other than that, we come out every two weeks with this podcast, but uh, there is a three-week time frame because we will be having uh, two weeks of comics. We'll actually be covering the last three weeks of comics to stay on schedule. So, with that, Stella? Yes, sir. Uh, I just want to put out a little a little plea, I guess, for your help. Uh, recently, it was announced that Flashpoint is going to be made into a direct-to-video production from Warner Brothers. And I know that, you know, there are definitely fans of Flashpoint. I'm not as great a fan. I, I didn't think it was well-written. And, of course, here we are in, in this new DC-52. And it's just sad that that story is getting a, a video release, and we've got a great story, a hands-down great story that I don't think I've heard anyone complain about. Becker, you're one that has no no video release for it so remember you can always go on the uh, the petition uh, and sign it the, you know get back or your one back into production and now there is a Facebook page for it so look for that there if you want to support it alright and we'll provide links on the website for those as well so with that that is pretty much everything for this episode I want to make sure you are fully aware if you read nothing but the comics and don't and you kind of live under a rock. Dark Knight Rises comes out in just under... Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And uh, with that being said, 
There's all kinds of news happening with that film, and you can check out all the news on the website. Also listen to the normal podcast. Uh, we're trying to do a number of different things leading up to the release of The Dark Knight Rises, focusing on things related to The Dark Knight Rises. I know that doesn't make a lot of sense, but just check out the normal cast. Um, you can also check out one of our new podcasts, which is called The Batman Universe Bat Fans Podcast. And that's basically uh, a bunch of guys who are Bat fans who don't really cover so much news as they do um, just give their perspectives on all kinds of things happening. And it's perspectives from a wide variety of different areas. It's not just they're all fanboys who, you know, hate Chris Nolan or they're all fanboys who are in love with Chris Nolan. They do have some interesting opinions, so you can check them out on the website as well. We have a number of other feeds that you can check out as well, and you can always join the forums and become a member of the forums and chat with other bad fans. If you do, please send us an email and let us know to activate your account. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube for all the latest videos and updates to the thebatmanuniverse.net, and of course, you can always leave us a review on iTunes or email us at podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net. That is everything for this episode. This is Dustin. This is Donovan. This is Joe. Uh, hello, Stella. And this is Stella. You've been listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. We'll see you guys next time. <laughs> Take care, everybody. And Stella. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> I was at the shop today, and I read uh, the latest uh, Detective, or I started it, and then Batman kind of bums in and starts start saying crap, and I just put it down and left the store. <laughs> I was like, I'll deal with this when I have to, <laughs> and not pay for it. Gail Simone's is one of my favorites, since her Batgirl opens up in the 1940s with this great historical anecdote. Yeah, Gail's is really good. <clears throat> mm, yeah. <laughs> Originality as well. Four out of five bats for me. Wait, batarangs for me. What? I'm sorry. How long have you been doing this? I don't do it on purpose. Did I do it last I think time? You do. No, I truly you do. It like don't. almost at least once an episode, and then you say and you're like, oh wait, sorry, I meant batarangs. <laughs> that one was a legit slip. Though. It's because I say bats on my show. I just try to get you to why. change it. I do apologize. That wasn't on purpose. All right, anyway. Say it one more time. Yes, sir. <laughs> the, reason be- the reason I say this is because, to my knowledge, when this book was solicited back in... You know what? Hold on a second. What month would this have been solicited? May, three months before that. Uh, February? February. Let's see. He has, like, files. Here He's got files and, like... He pulls it out, and there are financial records in the files. They're our financial records. <laughs> I know. <laughs> he probably has background checks on all of us. Well, that I guess. Aha! <laughs> Drug test he never thought would test. That man could be the, the new Roger bonus.
What are we going to do? Hey, that might be a bit harsh. I'm sorry. Up, uh, turn your cell phone into a sonar device. I can get background checks. Oh, God. And the second stipulation was that the tal- since the talent could come from any era of Gotham's history, <laughs> so if you loved the 1950s, you could pick a 50s talent, and we had a had chart laying out the particulars of a story of the history of the city from t- any time. Harley, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can't get the taste. I can't get the taste of Tony Daniel out of my mouth. Apparently, which I probably should rephrase that. But um, j- just. <laughs> He probably should have <laughs> Okay, well, let me ask this. What does Saturday look like? <laughs> For about a half hour. Or whatever the amount I know that's it. Don's graduation. Yeah, that's not going to fly. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, what about Sunday? That's my grandma's birthday. <laughs> okay, what about Friday night? Uh, I'm going to be... <laughs> I'm going to be busy, too. You know, sometimes, Donovan, I just don't think you care about the forecast. <laughs> oh you can't kill the undead, silly. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs>